<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. What's up, everybody? Welcome to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. We're so glad that you're here. As always, I am your host, Lauren Ash, and as always, I am joined by my co-hostess with the most S, Christy Oxborough. Now, this is when I would normally ask her how she's feeling, but uh, we're all kind of going through it right now. Um, it would be very odd if we didn't uh, address this right off the top of the show, so we decided that we're going to. Um, there's characters that have emerged on this podcast over the past year and a half we've been doing it. And one of our main players, you could say, on the show has been, of course, Dave Grohl and the Foo Fighters. And last week, uh, we uh, the world lost uh, Taylor Hawkins, which feels just so impossible even to say. Um, Christy broke the news to me. I was away, and she broke the news to me, and I I broke the news to friend of the podcast, Leslie Tyler's husband, who's also a big fan of the Foo Fighters, and... And uh, we went and sat and cried, he and I, <laughs> uh, for, for a little bit. It was just uh, such a gut punch. Um, it's just unbelievable that we, to me, that we saw them so so recently. And um, it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking for his family. It's heartbreaking for all of them. But I think especially, to knowing if, if you are a fan of the Foo Fighters and or Dave Grohl, uh, how deeply he loved Taylor. I mean, I've said on this show before, I felt like Christy was the Taylor to my Dave, and just the idea of losing someone that close to you makes me uh, want to give up. So um, we just wanted to start the show by giving a shout-out to uh, Taylor Hawkins, who is uh, so horrifically missed. I, I'm, I'm still having a hard time even wrapping my head around it. Um, so I'm sorry I'm not being very eloquent, but um, that's where I we wanted think... to start. I think you're being quite lovely. Wow, thank you. I it's <laughs> I'm shocked that I have not <laughs> sprung a leak out of the eye sockets yet. Um, oh, you're uh, you're doing a great job. It's one of those things where you don't see it coming. Uh, 
it's even when you know it's coming, it's still difficult. Yeah. But when you're blindsided, it's uh, something that really takes the wind out of you. And you just don't know uh, where to go from there. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I, we were in the middle of a movie, uh, my husband and I, and I just happened to, because I can't watch a movie anymore without, you know, scrolling on a phone. Of course. And we were watching a movie and I just randomly picked up my phone and went to Twitter. And the first thing on there was the uh, post from the Foo Fighters. And I read it. And I just said, though, that's not real. That can't be real. And I said it so many times that my husband paused the movie and was like, what's up? And I was like, this can't be real. And he's like, what's going on? And I was like, this, I explained it to him. He immediately starts Googling, trying to see if he can find out information. And I was like, but it's, I, he's like, well, how do we know? And I said, well, it's their, their, it's their account. It's their legit account. I can't see it being untrue. I don't feel like they would even go there as a joke. Uh, and so, yeah, it was, uh, it was rough. Uh, there was a, a quick cry and I, I had messaged you the stupidest fucking thing on the planet. And then I got the news. And so I had to follow the stupidest thing on the planet <laughs> with, oh my God. And I, well, I didn't want to just spill it but I had forgotten that you were away. And so I was like, oh, my God. And so it was stupid, stupid comment followed by, oh, my God, did you hear? Oh, my God. Uh, and then it was like, what's going on? And I was like, she doesn't know. And then I thought, I can't text it because I'm freaking out and shaking. So then I was like, you know, what's a good idea. I'll audio audio message it to her, just like a little quick voice memo and send it to her, thinking that would be okay. And I sobbed through, <laughs> through it, which couldn't have been an easy way uh, to hear it. So what a boob. Um, no, no. I, I appreciated hearing it from you uh, if I had to hear it at all. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I would rather hear it from you than, than uh, you know, have the same. I mean, it's a gut punch either way, obviously, but oh, I appreciated hearing it from you for sure. But I mean, my God. Uh I don't want to say it out loud. Um, the fact that I literally texted you, I think I'm attracted to Optimus Prime. <laughs> and then immediately, like within 10 minutes, I texted you again and was like, oh my God. But also don't forget my response, which was, yes, I felt that way for years. So, so again, <laughs> you came to the right lady with that. Yeah, you did. But, you know, uh, fuck. I mean, that's life, right? Like life is a series of of uh, funny observations and great tragedies. It's just the and the spaces between. I feel like that's it. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's just goes to show that whether we're recording or not, this is just who we are. Yep. It's like this all the time. 24 hours a day, seven days a week. All the time. I'm sure it's exhausting for some, but. Well, not for us. Uh, those aren't our people. Uh, but yeah, yeah uh, you know, I'll just sum this up again because I, I feel myself starting to go, uh, which was inevitable. I said to Christy before, she was like, well, you know, we should, we have to address it. We knew we had to address it. I mean, again, it's of like, course. It, whenever there's been Foo Fighters news in the past year and a half, so many of you dear listeners will send it, send stuff to us on our socials. Like, I feel like it's become 
as synonymous with us as like Blanche and like the things that yeah. people think of when they if if you're you know longtime listeners of the show. And so Christy was like, well, we have to address it, but maybe maybe we won't do it long enough that we cry. And I was like, oh, there's a 100% <laughs> chance that I will cry. I mean, you, I mean, how often do I cry in this show? The answer is often. Um, it's just who I am. You're just um, in touch with your emotions. Oh, they're very close to the surface always. But yes, the, the last thing I will say is, is that the, the Zoom popped up tonight and we were both in the uh, Christie's B-Day Foo Crew shirts that I had made for Christie's birthday this past uh, December 2021, uh, where uh, we went to Vegas in a group and, and we saw the Foo Fighters and it was right before Omicron. It was in that sweet spot of like two weeks where things yeah. felt kind of normal again. We were still masking, but kind of normal. And they started that show with times like these. And I, I've told this story on the show before and I don't care. I just wailed. Like I was like a sobbing. I mean, I know you were yeah. crying too, but so many people there were, but like it was so watching here. I'm going to go, but I have to say it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I said it that night too. Dave Grohl is, they're all amazing. That band is amazing. I've said for years, they're the last real rock band. And I believe that to be true because anything you hear on those songs, they play live. If there's like a keyboard sound, they got a keyboard guy on stage. If there's another vocal, they bring in a vocalist. Like they are a rock band through and through. There's no tracks. There's no backing tracks, you know, which is so amazing. And again, rare, I feel like. Um, with technology. But Dave Grohl that night, he played so hard. Yeah. It was just like so beautiful to watch that it was like, I think about me and like how when I don't perform, you start to feel like a rat in a cage where it's like, I need to be doing what I do and like seeing him do what he does and then seeing the way he like talks about Taylor and bringing Taylor up to sing and then Taylor singing Somebody to Love by Queen, which is my go-to karaoke song I was just like this is one of the greatest nights of my life and I'm so grateful now obviously that we had it but I'm so sad that that's the last time we'll ever have a chance to have that ever again it's such a loss for them and for everybody oh uh, you got what you wanted people <laughs> old ash springing tears as always <laughs> and I don't have any tissues in the house so what do I have a giant roll of cottonelle toilet paper <laughs> I wish I could then go into an ad for them. They don't sponsor the show. But if they'd like to, it's a good product. <laughs> I, again, just <sighs> doesn't matter if we're recording or not. Yep. This, is this, genuine, is this is the This vibe. is genuinely yep. what you get yep. uh, when we're, uh, yeah, yep. yeah, when we're together, this is just it. Um, God, yeah. I mean, the first thing I thought of uh when I heard the news was just such a relief that that show happened. Um, like it turns out that that was a once in a lifetime. I had never seen them before. I've never openly sobbed at a, at a rock concert before. Uh, just openly sobbed. Um, there was just so much about it and what it just a beautiful coming together of, people and just the whole thing what a what a great great fucking time except for the asshole that did something that made dave Grohl kick him out partly oh, yeah. through, through the show <laughs> that was amazing but uh yeah. thank you to you for uh making that happen because my god i mean they're of course just always always touring and so they've 
got all these shows lined up. So the thought was like, oh, I've got to go to the next one. That's the closest. going to have to do that. And I could not be happier that we had the moment that we did. Because I know no matter what happens with them from now on, it just won't be the same. I'm sure it'll still be great. But there's just, they just fit so beautifully together. And it's one of those things where we didn't see it coming. So it's that whole life is short. Eat the pie. Eat the brie. Go on the trip. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Get the tattoo. Yeah. Spend time with people that you love. Spend none with people that you don't. You know, like if there are people that you're like, no, nah, I don't. I'm, I don't get joy from being around them. Yeah, that's your. This is your sign. This is your sign. It's time. It's okay. You yep. don't have to be around people you don't want to be. Don't waste your time um, on people who won't waste their time on you. You know, a hundred percent. Just, just go for it. If you're looking for a sign, now's the time. And look, my God, I within the last like day or two, I have turned into, life is short, just go for it. I have been looking up <laughs> uh, reviews on nearby tattoo <laughs> I love this. Shops. So, I love this. So we'll see. We'll see what's gonna, what's gonna happen, but uh, I'm ready for it. I got a lot of, well, a lot. I got four tattoos very quick together uh, when I was younger, and then got pregnant and never really went back after that and I've had now one since then but I'm ready it's time just do it shoot your shots eat the cheese yeah just it's too short it's too fleeting and so anyway uh we send our love to uh everyone impacted Taylor Hawkins family Dave Grohl uh everyone in the band uh it's a massive loss and we're so sorry to everyone who's hurting but know that you're not alone uh, now, Christy, as is our is our uh, custom, she told me that she's she's planned something chaotic and batshit, and I was like, "Good, because I'll be crying, and then I'm going to need you to do something to like bring us back from the edge." So this is again, you're just seeing into what our real relationship is, you know, all the time. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I need you to know it's not necessarily planned per se. Oh, it's great. more. Um, and I'm gonna. I find I'm gonna be embarrassed about this later, but. I have to go for it. And I need you to know, I'm dead serious about this. (laughs) I understand how ridiculous it is. So last night, my husband and I falling asleep. And you know, sometimes in those moments, you just have like a random chat as you're falling asleep. Sure. And I asked him a question. And he didn't have an answer. And I, I've known that man for almost 20 years. Yeah. And the fact that he didn't have an answer, I, I'm going to say shock, but also repulsed. I <laughs> could not believe it. To, uh, to put it in a single word, I was shook. Wow. And so I was like, what are you even talking about? I... I was like, I guarantee if I ask anybody, anybody this question, they're going to have an answer for me. And he's like, I, I don't know what to tell you. I don't. And I was like, what is going on? So I'm going to ask you the question. And again, I need you to know that I was 
dead serious when I asked this question okay. and dead serious by my reaction of how poorly I reacted to it. What is your favorite dinosaur? Great question. Um, to be honest, this is tough for me because I'm going to have to narrow it down. Okay, great. I think... I've always been partial to the pterodactyls. I like the fact that they could fly. Sure. I like the fact that they were such a large flying bird. Um, I've always liked the kind vegetarian way of the brontosaurus. The long neck. The fact that he's yep. not a fighter, he's a lover. <laughs> sure. I've liked the fact that the T-Rex has the tiny arms because he still oh. has an Achilles heel. You know what I mean? Yeah. There's something yeah. very biblical, ironically, about dinosaurs. <laughs> they each have something so specific. Yeah. Um, to be honest, uh, Stegosaurus also comes to mind. Hey! Random to throw in there, but it also is one that comes to mind. Uh, I don't think you realize that I also loved dinosaurs as a child, so you've really like tapped into something. I think that was something I kept to myself mostly. A hundred percent, but I just yeah. want to say... You have proven my fucking point. <laughs> <laughs> well, I haven't even given, I, I mean, I've kept going. So again, I haven't. Oh, I know. I, I asked answer. and yeah. he said, he doesn't have one. And I was like, what do you mean? Yeah. And he's like, I don't have one. To which I responded, have you never spoken to a fucking child? <laughs> because in my brain, kids, every kid asks yeah. you that kind of thing. And he went, yeah. okay. What's our kids' favorite dinosaurs? And I went, oh, I don't think they're into dinosaurs. <laughs> so again, just, you know. Well, you know who what is. A, this is. This is what the delight of being married to me is like. Well, and the good news is, you know who does have a favorite di dinosaur? Apparently, this chucklehead. Because I love good. this question more than life. I also yeah. just want you to know that I remember vividly as a child getting into a heated discussion with a teacher. Because I was like, why is it that when we see depictions of them in photos, like in, in drawings, because we have no photographs yeah. of them, why are they all black or, or all brown and green? Um uh, you know, I said, is that because reptiles are traditionally browns and greens now? I said, because we weren't around then. There's nothing to say that they weren't neon pink, that they weren't blue or yellow, vibrant colors. We don't know. And the teacher yeah. was like, well, I think like for survival, they needed to be the color of the surroundings to blend in. And I said, bull shit. There is absolutely no reason that something that can rip another thing's head off needs to hide. Am I right or am I wrong here? I, you know, I, I knew bringing this up was going to go one of two ways, and I couldn't be happier with the direction that it's gone. That it's gone. I, I did not expect, yeah, for you to just come alive. Uh, look, I get it. Um, as a fan of Jurassic Park, yeah, I feel like everyone should have a favorite dinosaur. Yep. Um, I think this is a great question about the coloring. I love the idea of, you know, maybe a T-Rex was just outright hot pink. That sounds amazing to me. I just, I think again, that it's possible. proving my point. <clears throat> Thank you. I think I've that it's possible felt more that the... I, and I'm so glad for that. I think it's possible that the smaller guys, the little the little ground guys, they could yeah. have been 
greens and browns to try and blend in. But the T-Rex sure. is a major predator. He had no reason to need to. And the pterodactyl, by the way, who's pulling a pterodactyl out of the sky? Not little arms. <laughs> Not little arms. He ain't going to do it. And guess who else isn't? The brontosaurus because he's a vegetarian. So those pterodactyls have a great opportunity to be like banana yellow and I would be shocked if they weren't. Okay. <laughs> I, for those listening and not viewing, I, I, can't, I can't tell you what you just missed out on watching her little arms flail around. <laughs> oh, what... What a gift in my life. Not just the vindication, everything that's happening here. Yeah. Um, oh, my God. Well, I would I would love if they were multicolor. I hope that I hope there were some that were like a rainbow, yep. like some sort of ombre sort of situation. I would love it. I, I, <laughs> I did not know you had a deep, deep rooted love of dinosaurs. Well, does last... that mean you like Jurassic Park movies? Uh, I do. I definitely do. Um, I think for me, my major hangup was it was playing into this brown <laughs> and green narrative that I've never cared for. So I think that that was more of my issue there than anything yeah. else. Which again, I hear myself. I know. But I also feel like, I wish I could remember which teacher that was. I also feel like shame on you for tramping down one small girl's imagination. But also, by the yes. way, that had science to back it up. I hey. was, right? I understood what he, what he or she was saying. Um, but I also had a follow-up, which was right. But but again, like for the major predators, there was no reason no reason for them to need to. And for the the flying ones, again, what was their what was a pterodactyl's major source? Like I guess maybe a raptor, but a raptor's not as big as a T-Rex. Pterodactyl can fly higher. That's true. I think if I had to choose, and I know it's impossible ultimately, and I'm gonna kick myself as soon as this is over, but Mm-hmm. Hot pink T-Rex and a banana yellow pterodactyl are tied. And that's just it. And I got to throw in a beautiful, like, mint green brontosaurus. Because that's always how I've pictured them in my mind. Like a like a vibrant mint green. Again, Lauren Ash just going above and beyond. I've come alive. Look, you yeah. know what? And I'll say it for very quickly. You know what? I think for me, I felt like it was, and this is not, it, this was not imposed on me by anything or anybody. I think yeah. for me, it was a gendered thing. I felt like it was a boy thing. And so I, I had my books at home, which sure. I poured over. Of course. Um, But I think it was just something that I didn't engage in in a larger way because I felt like it was a, quote, boy thing, which, again, is just societal. There was nobody in my life saying that. I was purchased the books. It's not like it wasn't encouraged for me. It was was just, I think, my own, you know, society uh, keeping you down. So, you know what? Thank you because (laughs) I love that I've gone from the lows of – crying about uh, arguably one of the greatest drummers to, we will ever see in our generation uh, yeah. from one of my favorite bands of my entire uh, uh, <laughs> entire life. Uh, I like that I was able to, to bounce back with a question that brought me so much joy. So thank you. I, <laughs> I couldn't be happier than the direction that went. I only um, have one other question, though. Yeah. What's yours? I'm so glad you asked <laughs> 
Number one, right out the gate, Triceratops. Classic. I like the horn configuration. It's like a goddamn crown that they've got over. I love it so much. Um, Second is a very specific, not just type of dinosaur, one specific dinosaur, and that's the female T-Rex from Jurassic Park because she was badass. Yeah. Yeah. And no one was keeping her down. I um, Also, <laughs> correct me if I'm wrong, wasn't yellow pterodactyl uh, part of our family feud um, uh, practice run that we did? Yeah, and I totally forgot about that. That's wild. <laughs> this is something that has existed in my mind that I haven't thought about for, my God, 20 years, maybe more. Yeah. It was always in there. Is a yellow pterodactyl a thing? I don't know, but I feel like we're going to have to explain this <laughs> a bit more. Yeah. It wasn't it wasn't us on the show. No. no. We were watching um, episodes of Family Feud to train because I of ran course. a tight ship as captain of that team. You um, did. And, and one of the questions was in this episode we were watching, it was something about an animal in a circus or it was what's a, what is something in a circus that can... Uh, Shortest lifespan. With the shortest lifespan. And one of the person's answers on a team, legit, was yellow pterodactyl. And we were losing it because we were like, that is true, true batshit chaos. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they gave it to her because one of the things on the board was animal. And I I don't know. I still to this day don't know how I feel about that. Yeah. I'd like to be given a rule book that I could look over. There's gray area. I'll say that much. You know what else is gray? Arguably some of the dinosaurs, but not in my book. Not if you ask me. Also, you didn't ask, but I'll tell you, in my yeah. mind's eye, Triceratops, bright yeah. fire engine red. Always have been. Oh, nice. Yeah. Look, if you <laughs> could make a series of children's books with adorably colored dinosaurs. And I can get the science in there saying that, yeah, the little ones, they would have to adapt. But the big guys... What I love is I'm like, you should write a book for children and your responses, and I'd make it educational. I'm going to say it. It might bring us full circle back to crying. LeVar Burton would be so proud of you. Oh, don't throw that around. (laughs) Oh, my God. Oh, my God. If I wrote a book, a children's book, and LeVar Burton... Yeah, there, I'll go. (laughs) I'll go. He is an angel. He's a treasure. Oh. oh. Yeah. I love him. The book could be called Dinosaur yeah. Rainbow. That's I mean, beautiful. It is. I'm writing this down. And then you're also helping, you know, with the whole, you're trying to take the gender out. Exactly. Of dinosaur. Yes. They're for everybody. Yeah. Oh, my God. I know. I gotta Look, register just, this with the Writers Guild ASAP. You know what I mean? Oh, 100%. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. What a roller coaster it has been. And we haven't even gotten into the episode yet. But this is why people come back into the show. You know what I mean? And it's also yeah. why some people don't go back, come back. And to that I say, <laughs> see you never. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I get that. I get that. It's okay. We're it's a not, specific brand. And it's not for them. And that means they're not for us. It's better this way. It's better for everybody. Uh, listen, 
I'm actually quite jazzed about this episode of the show. I say that without uh, without hyperbole um, because we're going back to our roots, which is Unsolved Mysteries. This show, yeah. if you have not gone back, go back to the beginning for when we started, where we were newbie podcasters. Uh, we were doing all the new Unsolved Mysteries episodes that aired on Netflix. Uh, but this is one from back in the day, back yeah. in the original, 80s. the 80s. And that's exciting. Yeah. That's exciting for me. Um, so we're just going to get into it. This, of course, uh, the episode is Unsolved Mysteries, Cindy James, and I'm going to give you a brief synopsis to let you know a little bit about what we're going to be talking about. So after enduring seven years of harassment from an unknown stalker, 44-year-old Cindy James was found dead near an abandoned house in British Columbia, Canada. She had been drugged, strangled, and her feet and hands were bound behind her back. And yet, police immediately ruled Cindy's death a suicide. So what really happened to Cindy James? Is it possible that Cindy was involved in any way? Was it someone from Cindy's personal life? Or did the unidentified stalker finally get too close? Christy Oxborough investigates. I gotta say, watching a, an episode... <laughs> I've seen so many episodes of Unsolved Mysteries... But this was the first one that watching it, I was like, okay, okay, I get it. Robert Stack is terrifying. <laughs> like the, yeah, yeah. There was something about him. I never used to, I used to kind of weirdly find him comforting. And I don't know what that means. And I don't want to look into it. Yeah. But now yeah. I see it. Now I see it. Uh, but still, what a delight. Really took me back. I, of course, couldn't just do the segment i had to watch the entire show and uh i couldn't stop i couldn't stop it's what a gift uh it is in our life so uh i'm gonna give a disclaimer as i uh tend to do uh this episode will contain mentions of physical abuse animal abuse suicide and sexual assault trigger warning for those who need it so Otto Henry Hack was born in Poland in 1920 before emigrating to Canada three years later. In 1925, he joined the Canadian military as an education officer and even spent five years with NATO. Around 1942, Otto married Manitoba-born Matilda Monk, known as Tilly. The couple would have six children, including Douglas, Marlene, Roger, Ken, and Melanie. Their oldest was Cynthia Elizabeth Hack, known better as Cindy, who was born June 12, 1944, in Oliver, British Columbia, Canada. And be I'm going to say it now for those non-Canadians, uh, at some point when I'm talking about British Columbia, I think I've just shortened it to BC. So just know that's what the hell I'm saying. <laughs> Because I think at some point I do, and then I don't point out why I say that. And some people might not be aware. Just pointing it out. Uh, Cindy was described as warm, sincere, and funny. At the age of 19, Cindy married a 37-year-old psychiatrist named Roy Makepeace around 1963. Cindy graduated from nursing school in 1966, and in 1975, she became a team coordinator at Blenheim House, a day treatment center for preschool-aged children with behavioral and emotional problems. On July 1st, 1982, Cindy filed for divorce. 
Which leads me to a quick inconsistency side note. Mm. You know how much I dislike inconsistencies when I'm researching. Especially in the lesser-known cases where most of the information about them is just the same thing copied over and over again. In multiple places, I read the divorce came after 16 years of marriage. So that would mean Cindy and Roy were married in 1966. But as stated earlier, other sources claim that Cindy married Roy when she was 19, and he was 37, which puts their marriage around 1963. I know I should be happy just to say it's somewhere between 1963 and 1966, but I want the accuracy. It's possible they were married in 63 and separated 16 years later in 1979 and officially divorced in 1982, but no source has outright said that, and I'm just annoyed by it. Do you think so, it's possible, very quickly, sorry to yeah. interject so early, no, no. I rarely do anymore, but do you think it's possible she could have been maybe underage when they got together or something, so they fudged it? Because that's always what plays with our timelines. It is possible. Or can be. I, I mean, the joke there. is, the length of time they were married, not even a point in this whole episode. It's just the inconsistency and in information that bothers me. And I, again, it, anything's possible. Well, and I support it, and that's why I want to get to the bottom of it. <laughs> of course. Again, doesn't matter what I do, you will always find a way to be supportive. Thank you. So after filing for divorce, Cindy started living on her own for the first time, as she had gone from living with her parents to living with Roy. Even after the divorce, it is said that Cindy and Roy continued to date for a while. On October 12, 1982, less than four months later, Cindy received her first of many harassing phone calls. Sometimes they were threatening or obscene, and sometimes the voice was nothing but a whisper, and sometimes it was just silence. The next day, more phone calls were made, but this time someone tried to open the back door of Cindy's house. And in the span of one week, a rock was thrown through her window, and Cindy reported someone had entered her home and slashed her pillow. She hadn't noticed until she pulled back the blankets when going to bed. The officer who arrived on scene suggested that maybe Cindy's ex-husband Roy was responsible, but Cindy was adamant that Roy wouldn't do such a thing as he was the one who encouraged her to call the police in the first place. At the end of October, a note was found on Cindy's porch with letters cut out of magazines like a ransom note in a movie. And this was just the beginning. Over the course of nearly seven years, Cindy would report nearly 100 incidents of harassment from some sort of unknown assailant. Most seemed to be like creepy phone calls or ominous notes left at her house, but sometimes it escalated to a dangerous level to the point where there were five major incidents. Uh, But to prevent any confusion, we're just going to talk about the harassment in the order in which Cindy received it. The first officer to start working with Cindy was Pat McBride, who installed deadbolts on Cindy's doors and started to visit her daily to check up on her. And less than two weeks later, on October 31st, McBride actually moved in with Cindy in his mind to protect her. The couple soon started dating, which no shade, but seems like a terrible idea. Yes. Yeah. Shortly after McBride moved in, 
he finds Cindy's ex-husband, Roy, walking around the alley behind her house, carrying a rifle and a handgun. Which begs me to ask, what were you doing there, Roy, and why were you armed? But even with McBride being so close, the harassment didn't stop. Two weeks after he moved in, the phone calls resumed, and then Cindy found a paper under a windshield wiper of her car. It was a page ripped from a book called Mal- Malpractice, and it was a picture of a corpse. Oh Cindy's God. Yeah. Cindy's phone lines were also cut in five places. McBride allegedly... Oh, sorry. Wrong spot. Police were unable to uh, obtain any clues. Cindy and McBride continued to date, but she asked him to move out on December 1st, just one month after moving in. Despite moving out, McBride allegedly kept a key to her house. In January 1983, the phone company taps Cindy's phone in the hopes of getting to the bottom of the harassing calls. A few of the calls are traced, but most are too short to get any information from. On January 4th, Cindy received more disturbing images, this time in the mail, and McBride found a note on Cindy's lawn uh, that was, again, like uh, letters cut out of magazines. Uh, Both the note and the mail included pictures of women with their faces scratched out, knives, dead bodies, that sort of thing. They also included words like dead and mangled pulp. The first major incident occurred on January 27, 1983. Cindy's close friend, Agnes Woodcock, arrived at Cindy's house for an impromptu visit. Agnes knocked on the door, but got no answer, so she assumed that Cindy was having her nightly bath. But then Agnes thought she heard a noise, so she went around back and found Cindy lying unconscious in the yard. Cindy was in the fetal position with a black nylon stocking tied tightly around her neck. She had over a dozen cuts on her arms and legs. Cindy later told police she had gone out to her garage to get a box when someone grabbed her from behind. She said there were two attackers, but she only saw a pair of white sneakers. Cindy was so terrified after the attack that she moved back into the house that she lived in during her marriage to Roy Makepeace. Roy moved out. In February, police are fully convinced that Roy is the culprit. But when they mention Roy as a suspect, Cindy again is adamant that Roy is innocent. So police look closer at Cindy and ask her to take two polygraph tests. The results both come back inconclusive, but the examiner states that both tests included an instance where Cindy was withholding information. Cindy then admitted to police that she recognized one of her attackers, but they had threatened to harm her family if she came forward. Cindy refused to say more. But she was clearly terrified as she ended up moving again in April, but on April 14th, the harassing phone calls started up again, so two weeks later, Cindy moved for the fourth time in less than a year. And not only was she moving, she also had her car painted, she changed her phone number, and she only gave it out to family and close friends. But even still, the phone calls continued. Usually it was just someone breathing into the phone, although there were times when the caller would threaten Cindy's life. In July 1983, Cindy decided she needed to get out of town, so she went to Jakarta, Indonesia, to visit her brother. Her ex-husband, Roy, paid for the trip. But when Cindy returned, the harassment continued. 
On August 22, 1983, threatening letters started to arrive for Cindy at her workplace. On October 15th, Cindy arrived home to find a dead cat in her garden with a note that read, You're next. Jesus. The cat had been strangled. Oh. Two weeks later, Cindy arrived home to find her beloved garden had been trashed. Police again suggest that Roy might have been the culprit, but Cindy still says Roy would never do that because he knows how much the garden means to her. However, later it was found in Cindy's personal diary that she had written she wondered if it was in fact Roy, as he had allegedly trashed her garden once when they were married. In November, Officer Pat McBride, who was still investigating the incidents, although I'm unsure if he and Cindy were dating at the time, arrived at Cindy's house and found another threatening note on her front porch. Four days later, two dead cats were left in Cindy's yard, and her phone lines were cut. One of the cats had been strangled, the other appeared to have been hit by a car. McBride suggested that Cindy hire his friend, private investigator Ozzie Cabin. Uh, And not only did Cindy hire Cabin, but she also installed a security system and started seeing a therapist to help her cope with the incredible stress she was feeling from the incidents. Around this time, Cindy also admitted to police that during her marriage to Roy, he had threatened her and physically assaulted her on more than one occasion. Cindy told police that she would cut off all contact with Roy. On January 30th, 1984, Cindy was attacked for a second time. Around 6 p.m., Cabin, who had given Cindy a two-way radio, heard some strange noises and headed straight to Cindy's home. When he arrived, he found the doors to be locked. So when Cindy didn't open the door when Cabin knocked, he wandered around the property looking into windows. He saw Cindy lying on the floor of her living room and immediately kicked in the front door. Cindy had a black nylon stocking wrapped tightly around her neck and she had been hit on the head. Cabin said, quote, there was a note that was pinned with a paring knife through her hand. The note was made from letters cut out of magazines and read, quote, You're dead, bitch. Oh my God. Yeah. Cabin also said, quote, I went to the telephone and called 911, and within about two minutes, she revived briefly, and then they took her to the hospital. She told me she noticed a man coming through the gate. The next thing she remembers is being hit on the side of the head with a piece of wood or something of that nature. She then remembered being held down on the floor and remembered a needle going into her arm. There was a needle mark found on Cindy's arm, but no drugs were found in her system. Cindy has no memory of the attack. Police couldn't find any unknown fingerprints in the house, and since the doors were all locked, police started to question if Cindy was responsible for the incidents. They set up 24-hour surveillance at Cindy's house with up to 14 officers taking shifts, and during the police presence, there were no harassing phone calls or incidents. But once surveillance was taken off the house, the incident started to happen again, and on February 14, 1984, police brought Roy in for questioning, which lasted nearly six hours. Whoa. Roy claimed he was not responsible for the attacks on Cindy and that he didn't know who the culprit was. However, he suggested that maybe a family of one of the, quote, troubled children 
that Cindy worked with could be responsible. And that maybe that family had ties to organized crime. And I'm sorry, but that's quite the leap, Roy. (laughs) But I find it interesting that Roy was the first person to suggest that the mob could be involved. He didn't offer any proof or even a reasonable explanation as to how or why the mob would be involved. So maybe it was simply to take the heat off himself? Who knows? Yeah. But since the Roy uh, interview seemed to be a bust, police were back to believing that Cindy was the one behind it all. They even had Cindy take a third polygraph test in March 1984, which she passed. By the summer of 1984, the threatening and unsettling phone calls continued, but they were always too short to be traced. The calls also started coming to Cindy's workplace. Her home windows were broken. Her phone lines were cut. The harassment had taken a toll on Cindy as she started to lose weight and was withdrawing from her friends and family. In June, Cindy arrived home to find the back door partially open, so she triggered an alarm that Cabin had given her. When Cabin investigated the house, he found a sexually explicit note, and Cindy's dog Heidi had been tied to the kitchen table and beaten, but was still alive. Oh my god. Also found at the scene was a Rothman cigarette butt, which is out of place as it was not Cindy's brand. A few weeks later, another strangled cat was found on Cindy's property, which brings us to the third major incident. On July 3rd, 1984, Cindy told Cabin that she would be walking her dog Heidi at Dunbar Park at 8.30 p.m. Around midnight, Cindy showed up at a stranger's house, knocking on the door. When they answered, Cindy collapsed at the door with a black nylon stocking knotted tightly around her neck. Cindy was taken to the hospital where she was questioned by police. Cindy seems confused and disoriented. She claims that while walking, she was approached by a blonde woman and a bearded man who asked her for directions. Cindy said they were in a dark green van, but she couldn't remember anything else. Doctors found two needle marks on Cindy's arm, but the only drugs in her system were her prescription antidepressants. Private investigator Cabin uh, suggests that Cindy undergo hypnosis to help her remember more details from the incident, but the hypnotist is unable to get anything useful. On October 2nd, 1984, Cindy underwent a second session of hypnosis. This time, she claims she once witnessed a double murder, but she refuses to provide any more information. Two days later, Cindy, along with Cabin, asked the Vancouver police why they haven't made any more progress on Cindy's case. The police say they simply don't have any leads to go on. They already investigated Cindy's friends and co-workers, and Interpol had investigated Roy Makepeace, but nothing came of it. The police then admitted that they had performed surveillance at Cindy's home for four days straight and saw nothing suspicious. So a couple of months go by. Silence. Until December 1984, when the terrifying phone calls start up again. In January 1985, during a third session of hypnosis, Cindy claims she witnessed her ex-husband Roy murder and dismember a young couple during a yacht trip to Thormanby Island in 1981. Thormanby is approximately 53.5 miles or 86 kilometers west of Vancouver. 
I wish I knew the alleged couple's name so I could look into them, but the police found that Cindy's sister Melanie was also on that yacht trip, and Melanie said she didn't witness anything unusual. Police were unable to find any evidence of any crime. Curious side note. I've read that Cindy also claimed this double homicide actually happened in 1982, when she took a trip with Roy to Gabriola Island to visit some of his friends. Cindy claimed that it was her husband and another psychiatrist named Dr. James Tyhurst who dismembered and then disposed of the bodies. Cindy said that when she told people about it, they told her she was crazy, as there was no way that two well-respected psychiatrists could be murderers. Shortly after this supposed trip, Cindy filed for divorce. Again, is it true? We don't know. I just wish I could get the couple's names so that I could do a search for them. But what I do know for sure is that in 1989, four women came forward to report that their therapist, Dr. James Tyhurst, sexually abused them. Whoa! Tyhurst allegedly made the women undress during their sessions and would often make them remain naked throughout the session. His former patients also accused him of physical assault with whips and jewelry, as well as rape. The attacks occurred at his office, in his home on Gabriola Island, and even in the women's homes. He stood trial twice in criminal court. One jury found him guilty of sexual and physical assault and sentenced him to four years in prison. Tyhurst got out on bond and appealed. Of course. He was found not guilty. During the second trial in 1992, he was ordered to pay the victim uh, over $500,000, but I can't tell if he ever actually paid or not. But from what I can tell, he hasn't done any jail time, which is horrifying. And if this isn't all maddening enough, Tyhurst denied any wrongdoing and claimed the women who came forward were, quote, all borderline psychotics living in a world of unreality. How convenient. I can't with this man. Yeah. My God. I know. So, unfortunately, we're going to need to put a pin in our anger on that piece of shit as we skip ahead a few months to the summer uh, when on June 21st, 1985, Cindy was hospitalized after overdosing on pills. Concerned that it was a possible suicide attempt, the hospital would only release Cindy if she went to stay with family. So a week later, she left to stay with her brother. However, that's just what Cindy told the hospital. She actually just went home on her own. Six days later, her phone lines were cut. In July, police conducted a week-long stakeout at Cindy's house, as well as at the house of Roy Makepeace. No suspicious activity was reported at either. A week later, Cindy called police to say she'd received another silent phone call. But what she didn't realize was the call was recorded by the phone company, who stated that it was Cindy who had dialed her own number. On July 27th, a case of rancid meat was delivered to Cindy's home through the mail. Then in August, the arsons started. On August 5th, Cindy reported the first arson at her house. A basement window was open, but there was no sign of forced entry. A second fire occurred the next night on August 6th, and a third fire happened on August 21st. Once again, 
A window was found open, and there was no sign of forced entry. And this time, investigators noted the dust and cobwebs in the windowsill were undisturbed. At this point, police were convinced that Cindy was behind everything, but Cindy was adamant that she had nothing to do with it. In December 1985, Cindy moved to Richmond. Which leads me to a Richmond true crime side note. Richmond, B.C. is only about nine and a half miles or 15.2 kilometers from Vancouver, and it's actually where Vancouver's airport is located. Now, you know that I like to squeeze in as much true crime as possible in my notes, but brace yourselves, (laughs) because this one gets dark. It all started with me looking into Richmond, B.C., an innocent enough thing to do. And it turns out that Richmond, B.C. was at one time home to a serial killer named Clifford Olson Jr. Of course. Olson, who was a genuine piece of garbage, murdered 11 children and teenagers between the ages of 9 and 18. And what shocked me the most is the killings all happened in the span of eight months. Olson spent most of his youth in and out of prison, including nine months for burglary, and then a series of escape from jail, get captured, escape from jail, get captured, which happened about six times over the course of 20 years. Olson also did time for forgery, theft, armed robbery, and sexual assault. In September 1980, Olson was released from jail, and on November 17, 1980, he abducted and murdered his first victim, 12-year-old Christine Weller. Olson then waited five months, almost exactly to the day, before striking again, this time abducting 13-year-old Colleen Dagno uh, on April 16, 1981. Less than a week later, on April 22nd, Olson abducted 16-year-old Darren Johnsrud. Now, at this point, most of the victims' bodies had not been found, so Olson wasn't on the RCMP's radar yet. For non-Canadians, RCMP stands for Royal Canadian Mounted Police, Uh, So he took a small break from the horrific killings to marry his girlfriend, Joan Hale. The couple had an infant son together, Clifford Olson III. And from what I can tell, the couple didn't take much of a honeymoon because just four days after their wedding, he abducted and strangled 16-year-old Sandra Wolfsteiner. And a month later, on June 21st, he abducted 13-year-old Ada Court. Now, I don't know what happened at this point, but for some reason, Olson decided to really step up his game. In the month of July, not only was Olson arrested for a sexual assault on a teenage girl, but he was also abducted. He also abducted and murdered five teenagers and one child. Nine-year-old Simon Partington was abducted July 2nd. Simon was arrested for assault on July 7th. And then on July 9th, he abducted and murdered 14-year-old Judy Cosma. And if it isn't horrifying enough to know that he didn't do any jail time for the sexual assault charge, or the fact that he murdered a girl just two days after the arrest, Olson abducted and murdered 15-year-old Raymond King, 18-year-old Sigrun Arnd, and 15-year-old Terry Lynn Carson, and 17-year-old Louise Chartrand, all in the span of a week. Jesus. But again, their bodies weren't found until a later date. Right. Most of the victims were strangled. Some were stabbed and bludgeoned. At least half of the victims had been raped. 
On August 12th, Olson was arrested for attempting to pick up two teenage hitchhikers, and a week later he was officially linked to and charged with the murder of Judy Cosma. Olson then makes a deal with the RCMP that he would show them the locations of the bodies of his other victims who hadn't been found yet, and that he would outright confess to all 11 murders. But Olson only offered to do that in exchange for money. And somehow, the RCMP agreed. Olson was paid $10,000 for every body that he led the police to, which totaled $100,000. Olson requested that the money go to his wife in a trust for their son. And when the public found out that he literally was paid for it, there was a massive public outrage. I bet. Shockingly enough. Uh, For Lauren's psychologist hat, Olson was 40 at the time of the murders, and when he was interviewed by a forensic psychiatrist, he was given a score of 38 out of 40 on the psychopathy checklist. Oh, God. Yeah. There it is. Yeah. Olson was given 11 concurrent life sentences and sent to Canada's Supermax facility in Quebec. He tried to get paroled numerous times, but was denied each time. Under Canadian law, inmates who are convicted of first-degree murder can apply for parole after serving a minimum of 25 years, and inmates are entitled to apply for parole every two years. Olson's case led to the adoption of some of Canada's first victims' right laws, uh, as well as a change to federal government legislation, because in 2010, it was revealed that Olson had been collecting over $1,100 a month in old age security since he turned 65 five years prior. The public, again, outraged. Yeah. And just two months later, the federal government introduced legislation that would suspend benefit payments to prisoners until after they are released. Olson died from cancer in September 2011 at the age of 71. At the time of his killing spree, Clifford Olson Jr. was considered to be Canada's worst serial killer. Since then, he has been surpassed by Robert Picton, a pig farmer who was convicted in 2007 for the second-degree murders of six women. During a lengthy investigation, it was found that Picton had been burying the bodies on his farm, and police ended up finding remains of 27 women. Picton also claimed to have fed some of the bodies to his pigs and even ground up human flesh, mixed it with pork, and sold it to locals, which is a horrifying detail that I wish I had forgotten when it yeah. first came out. Yep. Yep. Uh, good God. Picton was charged with second-degree murder of six women, and even though he was charged with 27 total, for some reason, those later charges were stayed, so he was only ever convicted of six murders, although Picton allegedly confessed to 49 murders between 1983 and 2002. He was sentenced to life in prison. And weirdly enough, Robert Picton was in Port Coquitlam, B.C., which is about 22.9 miles or 36.9 miles away from Richmond, which feels close when it comes to major serial killers. But a lot of Picton's victims came from Vancouver's downtown east side. But he wasn't 
the only serial killer at the time to pick up victims from that very same area because there was another serial killer in downtown Vancouver between 1965 and 1988. The other serial killer was Gilbert Paul Jordan, a former barber with a lengthy criminal record. His convictions included abduction, hit-and-run, drunk driving, car theft, indecent assault, and rape. And it turns out that between 1965 and 1988, Jordan murdered between 8 to 10 women. And if that wasn't enough, his weapon of choice was alcohol. That's right. He would pick women up at bars, take them to a hotel room where he would make them consume an insane amount of alcohol, and then he'd leave them for dead. What? The women were all found to have died from alcohol poisoning. Jordan was the first Canadian known to use alcohol as a murder weapon. Can I ask a very... Sure. uh, Did he assault them? Nope. That's wild. Yep. Not that I could... I did not look into each victim, but nothing that I read about him came up about an assault on any of them. That's fascinating. Horrific and fascinating. Oh, it... I can't even... Like, I did not know this man existed. Yeah, me neither. During a sting operation, police overheard Jordan speaking to one woman, saying things like, Have a drink. Down the hatch, baby. 20 bucks if you drink it right down. See, if you're a real woman, you'd finish that drink. I'll give you 50 bucks if you can take it. When the victims were found, their blood alcohol ranged from 0.34 to 0.76. Whoa, I didn't even think that was possible. I mean, I guess that's why they were dead, but Jesus. The legal limit in Canada is 0.08, just for clarification. Jordan was given the nickname the Boozing Barber and was sentenced to 15 years in prison, although after an appeal... His time was reduced to just nine years. What? And if that, yeah, if that isn't maddening enough, he was released after six. But he was put back in prison for numerous parole violations. In 1976, a psychiatrist diagnosed Jordan with antisocial personality disorder. The piece of shit died in 2006. Wow. So just, just to clarify... These three monsters not only lived in close proximity to each other, but they also killed in the same time frames. As a refresher, Clifford Olson, 1980-1981, Robert Picton, 1983-2002, Gilbert Paul Jordan, 1965-2004. Not to mention the fact that many of Picton's and Jordan's victims were sex workers from the same area of Vancouver. Which makes you worry about British Columbia. But remember, one of Canada's other big serial killers, Bruce MacArthur, was in Ontario. And I'm sure that we all recall he murdered eight men in Toronto between 2010 and 2017. Also in Ontario, there was Elizabeth Wetlofer, a registered nurse who murdered eight senior citizens and attempted to murder six more with insulin injections between 2007 and 2016. 
In June 2017, Wetlaufer waived her right to a preliminary hearing, confessed to all charges. She was sentenced to eight concurrent life terms in prison. Again, two big serial killers killing in the similar time frames in a similar area is horrifying <laughs> to me. Uh, so I guess what I'm saying is horrific things can happen literally anywhere. So good luck to all of us ever sleeping again with that thought in mind. But after that very long but informative side note, heck yeah, let's get back to the case at hand. Cindy moved to Richmond on December 1st, and on December 11th, Cindy went missing during her lunch break and was found semi-conscious, lying in a ditch at the corner of Blanca Street and West 16th Avenue, approximately 6 miles or 9.6 kilometers from her home. Cindy didn't have a coat or shoes and was found with a black nylon stocking wrapped around her neck. A needle mark is found on Cindy's arm, and she is found to be confused and incoherent. She remembers nothing of the incident. Cindy was found to have hypothermia, as well as multiple cuts and abrasions. Police consult with a psychiatrist who absolutely believes that Cindy has created the harassment herself. Instead of charging Cindy with criminal mischief, they encourage her to enter therapy. Cindy continues to see psychotherapist Dr. Alan Con Connolly, who was allegedly not licensed at the time. Oh, great. Cindy's friend Agnes and her husband Tom went to stay with Cindy to keep an eye on her. And while they were staying there, there was another fire. On April 15th, 1986, Cindy woke up woke up Tom and Agnes to say she heard a noise. Tom went to investigate and found the basement was on fire and the phone lines were cut. Tom ran outside to get help when he saw a man just standing at the curb, watching their house. Tom asked the man to call the fire department, but turned and ran the second that Tom spoke with him. I would like to point out at that point, it was like 2.30 in the morning. So why was someone just randomly standing outside staring at the house? Yeah. Police suspected Cindy of setting the fire, as once again, the only possible entrance would have been a window in the basement, but no dirt on the windowsill was disturbed, and police found no fingerprints in the area. Cindy accused her ex-husband Roy of setting the fire. However, Roy was in South Africa at the time. Cindy was evicted, which sent her mental health plummeting. She took a six-month leave of absence from work, and on her therapist's advice, Cindy was committed to the psychiatric ward at St. Paul's Hospital. Multiple psychiatrists independently reviewed Cindy's files, and each concluded that Cindy had orchestrated the attacks herself. One doctor even said that Cindy's therapist, Dr. Alan Connolly, had hampered Cindy's treatment by insisting that the attacks were real and that it was possible that Cindy might take her own life and stage it to look like her ex-husband was responsible. Dr. Connolly admitted he believed that was a real possibility, which is funny for a man who said all of the attacks were real and then to be told, well, she could just fake one. And he's like, oh, you're right. You're right. And it's Pick a lane, Connolly. Which is it? Yeah. Yeah. After a 10-week stay at the hospital, Cindy admitted to her friends and family that she knew more about the attacks than she had previously stated. According to Agnes, Cindy told her, quote, When it's all over, I'll explain everything to you, but I can't tell you now. 
And according to Cindy's father, Cindy said that not only did she know the identity of the perpetrator, but that if the police wouldn't help her, that Cindy would go ahead and help herself. I'm riveted. This is unbelievable. I I mean, I have a million thoughts, but obviously I'm going to save them till the end because... Of course. Uh, I mean, who knows where this is going to go next. All right, uh, everybody, let's take a quick break. Run to the can, grab yourself another drink, and we're going to be right back talking more about the unsolved mystery, Cindy James, on this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. We're talking the Unsolved Mysteries episode about Cindy James. Um, I forgot to ask Christy what she was drinking off the top of the show. The answer to your listeners is we're we're just hydrating. It's not it's not fun. <laughs> I didn't even want to sing the song. It's been an episode. Uh, we started I mean, out, look, look, we started out with me sobbing about about a a, a death about uh, from someone that means something to me, and uh, so this is yeah. where we're at. Anyway, yeah. just wanted to address it before we go <laughs> any further. Um, yeah. My apologies, uh, but that that's just the truth. Oh, look, I don't know if the dear listeners were really on the edge of their seat wondering what this is. The answer is I got a water and a, and a cherry Kool-Aid. That's where I'm at. <laughs> I have so many tumblers of water. Again, my voice. I'm losing my voice again, but that's another story for another time. It's <laughs> not important. Um, before the break, I, I honestly, I am riveted by this one because I knew nothing about it. And this is fascinating, terrifying on so many levels. Yeah. Uh, what happens next? Oh, well, it doesn't get any better. I'm sure of it. I'm sure of <laughs> I'm that. I'm telling you that. So Cindy was released from St. Paul's Hospital on July 15th, 1986. She started therapy with a new doctor and started to show vast improvement over the course of the summer. Cindy wanted to start rebuilding her life, so in September, she purchased her own home in Richmond and changed her last name from Makepeace to James. And in October, she returned to work. However, a month later, she was let go due to poor work performance. And despite the upset of losing her job, Cindy pushed ahead and took some nursing refresher courses and in August 1987 started a job at Richmond General Hospital. 
Shortly after she started, Cindy reported someone breaking one window and prying open another window at her house. Cindy went to the police and said that she truly believed that her ex-husband Roy Makepeace was the one behind the harassment. The reaction from the police seemed to be, oh, it couldn't have been Roy. He was in the country during that one single incident, as though they've never heard of an alibi. <laughs> Roy, of course, denied any involvement. Uh -huh. Throughout most of 1988, things seemed relatively calm for Cindy. There were a few instances of her reporting a hole in her window and her basement door being broken, but for the most part, there was nothing major. That is, until October, when Roy received a disturbing message on his answering machine from a deep, raspy voice that said, Cindy, dead meat, soon. Then on October 26th, Cindy arrived home from work and was attacked in her carport. She was found unconscious in her car with a black nylon stocking tied around her neck and a second stocking that hog-tied her arms and legs together. Cindy was nude from the waist down and had a piece of duct tape over her mouth. Cindy was taken to a hospital where she fell into a coma. Oh, dear. I don't know how long the coma lasted, but Cindy did survive. And by the spring of 1989, Cindy told her family she was feeling better for the first time in a long time because the attacks seemed to have decreased. In April, a prowler attempted to break into Cindy's house and left a threatening note. I couldn't find what was left on the note, but I found photos of some of the notes, which I will post on our socials on Instagram and Facebook at True Crime and Cocktails and on Twitter at Not Detectives. One note said, Soon, Cindy, and another featured pictures of a knife and a woman being strangled with the words, I see you. In early May 1989, Cindy contacted private investigator Ozzy Cabin to say that she wanted to install an infrared alarm system in her backyard so that she can, quote, shoot any intruders. Cindy also told Cabin that she was ready to talk, so maybe she was finally ready to tell everyone what she had been withholding all along. But on May 25th, 1989, Cindy James disappeared. That evening, Agnes and Tom Woodcock arrived at Cindy's home around 10 p.m. for a pre-planned game of bridge, but Cindy wasn't home. Agnes said that they pulled into Cindy's driveway and honked, as they always did, and Cindy usually would respond by looking out of the curtains and waving, but this time she didn't. They got out and knocked on the door, but there was no answer, so they started to get concerned. Cindy had recently started renting out her basement, so Agnes asked Cindy's tenant, Richard Johnson, if he had seen her. He was unsure of Cindy's whereabouts. The Woodcocks waited a few minutes and then decided to head home and call the police. On the way home, Agnes suggested that they should swing by a nearby mall called Blundell Center, as it was where Cindy did her banking. And sure enough, in the parking lot near Cindy's bank, and a Safeway grocery store, they found Cindy's car, a blue 1981 Chevy Citation. When Cindy wasn't in or near the vehicle, Agnes and Tom drove to the Richmond RCMP detachment, but were told they needed to wait 24 hours before reporting Cindy missing. Agnes put her foot down 
and demanded it, and an officer was dispatched to the scene. When the officer arrived, he inspected the vehicle with a flashlight and noticed blood on the driver's side door handle. So he called for backup. Cindy's purse was found on the front seat beside a wrapped present and four bags of groceries. Her wallet, bank card, and an ATM slip were found under the car. Shortly after 1 a.m., Agnes let the officers into Cindy's house. There was a deck of cards on the table in preparation for their game, and nothing seemed out of the ordinary. At 2.30 a.m., Cindy's car was towed from the parking lot to the police impound, where it would be examined further the next day. At 3.16 a.m., officers arrived at the apartment of Roy Makepeace and asked him where he was the day before. Roy said that he was at Bridgepoint Market with a female friend and that they had dinner before heading to her house where he set up her stereo system. He left around 11.30 p.m. and arrived home just after midnight. The female friend confirmed Roy's alibi. During Roy's interview, he told police he had received two disturbing messages on his answering machine in late 1988, both a whispery, raspy voice, the first one being the Cindy dead meat soon, and the second saying, quote, more smack, more downers, another grand after we waste her, no more deal. Roy said he hadn't told the police about the messages before because he simply didn't trust them. He also claimed that he didn't even realize the messages were about Cindy, alleging he misheard the message and thought it said Sunday, as opposed to Cindy. Uh-huh. Mm. The next day, investigators did a full search of Cindy's car. They noticed that the gear shift was in park and the heater was turned on but set to defrost. There was a there was an er, a Herb Alpert cassette tape in the stereo. Inside the ashtray were six Cameo brand cigarette butts, which were Cindy's preferred brand. Numerous bank deposit slips and envelopes were found between the front seats, and Cindy's hospital parking pass was found on the dashboard. Inside the glove compartment, investigators found papers, maps, and a handheld emergency alarm. There was a small notepad with the words KDV 784, small silver or gray written on the bottom of the top page. Police ran the plates, but it didn't match any vehicle from British Columbia. A receipt was found dated May 25th at 12.43 p.m. for a croquet set and wrapping paper, which was believed to be the wrap gift found in Cindy's front seat. Under the car, investigators found a receipt from a bank machine, which showed that Cindy had deposited money at 7.58 p.m., a search was conducted to find anyone who may have been at the bank or in the area at the time, and a woman who used the bank machine at 8 p.m. said that she saw a woman with shoulder-length blonde hair wearing a pink shirt and that the woman nearly drove into the side of her car. A man who used the bank machine at 8.01 p.m. said he saw a blonde walking across the parking lot for about 5 to 10 steps, but he didn't see her leave the parking lot. The man described her as wearing a blue jacket and dark pants. He was shown a photo of Cindy, but couldn't confirm whether she was the woman he had seen. The man agreed to be hypnotized in the hopes of providing the police with more information, but was only able to add that he didn't see anyone in any other vehicles in the parking lot. 
Police searched the entire area of Richmond for Cindy, including the using hovercraft from the Coast Guard and a helicopter. The Vancouver International Airport was canvassed, and bus drivers who had routes in the area were contacted. Police also spoke with store owners and locals who lived in the area. Many people recognized Cindy from a photo, but none had seen her recently. A few days after Cindy went missing, Cindy's tenant Richard, who was a life insurance agent, called police to say that a man phoned his company inquiring about the life insurance policy on Cindy James. The caller claimed to be Cindy's father, Otto, but was told he'd have to visit the office. Otto Hack claims he was not that caller. Now, interestingly enough, I read somewhere that near the mall where Cindy's car was found, there was an abandoned house, and on a fuel tank near that house, someone had spray-painted, quote, some bitch died here, with an orange line that led to a part of the grass that featured a spray-painted outline of a body. I could not confirm that officially, but I find it very interesting either way, as it was the very spot where Cindy James would eventually be found two weeks after she went missing. Wow. On June 8th, 1989, Cindy's body was found by a construction worker in the front yard of an abandoned house about 0.6 miles or one kilometer away from where she parked her car. She was lying on her side with her hands and feet bound together behind her back, She had a black nylon stocking tied tightly around her neck. She was wearing a pink blouse and brown pants. And while some reports claim she was that her shoes were practically scrubbed clean, the photos of the crime scene show that Cindy was barefoot. So I'm not sure what I believe, but the photos showed her feet were clean. So if she was barefoot, it's odd that her feet would be so clean. Hmm. A man's blue denim jacket was found beneath the body. Some reports claim that her face had taken a brutal beating as it was black and blue. Again, I could not confirm that specifically. Cindy James was just 44 years old. A June 10th autopsy revealed that Cindy had been strangled and drugged. The coroner believes that Cindy most likely died on the day she went missing. A toxicology report released weeks later would show that Cindy had overdosed on morphine and florazepam. In fact, she had 10 times the lethal dose of both in her system. The coroner believed that Cindy was given the morphine intravenously and that the florazepam was ingested in pill form as he found traces of pills in Cindy's stomach. Police checked with Richmond General Hospital, where Cindy was working at the time of her disappearance, and found that not only did Cindy not have access to those kind of drugs, uh, but the hospital wasn't missing any of that medication either. Since the autopsy couldn't determine a cause of death, a coroner's inquest was held. 84 witnesses testified, including an entomologist who believed that Cindy's body had been in that spot where she was found since June 2nd, which means that not only did no one see her, even though it was a high-traffic area for pedestrians, but that she was at a separate location for a week because she was last seen May 25th, and the coroner believes she died May 25th. So where was her body between May 25th and June 2nd? 
The inquest ended up being the most expensive and one of the longest inquests in the history of British Columbia, but in the end, the jury determined that Cindy had died from an unknown event, and her death was ruled undetermined. Jeez. Police determined Cindy's death to be a suicide and closed the case in July 1989. Now, before we fully get into the police's theory, let's look at what we know about the last day of Cindy's life. May 25th was the first of five days off for Cindy. She stopped by the hospital to pick up her paycheck at an unknown time. Her co-workers said that Cindy said she'd see them in a few days. According to Cindy's sister, Melanie, Cindy received a phone call that morning where the caller hung up on her. Cindy allegedly wrote it on her calendar, as well as another hang-up call on May 23rd. Cindy ran some errands, which included buying her friend's son a birthday present and going to the bay where she bought makeup and got a makeover. As I mentioned earlier, there was a receipt in the car for a croquet set and some wrapping paper, and it was time-stamped 12.43 p.m. So it's possible that Cindy bought the gift, went home and wrapped it, and then took it with her when she left a second time. At 4 p.m., Cindy's neighbors saw her leave the house. It is believed that she headed to a grocery store at this point. However, years later, Cindy's sister Melanie claims she found a receipt that showed Cindy went to a different location at a different time than police had originally speculated. Melanie also confirmed that Cindy had not purchased any black nylons on that particular trip. The last known move that Cindy made was to deposit her paycheck at 7.58 p.m. at a Bank of Montreal ATM. So now that we know more about her last day, let's look more closely at the police theory that Cindy took her own life. The police started to believe that Cindy was faking the entire harassment when they were unable to find a suspect or any evidence especially when Cindy reported more than 100 incidents. Vancouver police estimated that they spent nearly $2 million investigating her complaints, which is comparable to about $4.5 million in 2022. So it's wild to think that the police could believe that Cindy was in any way responsible. But I did notice a few things that supports their theory. For one thing, Cindy had her phone lines cut numerous times. And in June 1985, the phone company suggested that Cindy have her phone lines encased in a protective plastic to prevent that from happening again, but she declined. I don't know why. Okay. And then in July 1985, Cindy reported a threatening phone call to the police, but when the phone company looked into it, they found that Cindy had dialed her own number. Right, right, right. And during multiple attacks, Cindy's doors were found to be locked, and there were no fingerprints or any evidence that another person had been in the house. There was also the fact that, despite being terrified of the attacks, Cindy would often walk her dog alone late at night. And I'm all for not being a prisoner of your own fear, but that felt like an odd choice to me. And I know what you're thinking. If Cindy was orchestrating the attacks... What would she get out of it? I mean, there's the obvious attention, but is that enough to make a person fake so many incidents? Well, there's also the fact that after the first major incident in January 1983, Cindy received $4,200 from the Workers' Compensation Board um, 
because of their criminal injury section. That amount translates to about $12,000 in 2022. And after the fire in August 1985, Cindy's insurance company gave her $9,500, which is just over $25,000 in 2022. Okay. The main reason that people probably question the idea of Cindy's death being a suicide is the fact that she was found with her hands and feet hogtied behind her back. During the inquest, a not-expert was brought in, uh, not being a K-N-O-T expert. Oh, uh, an expert. Thank you. Uh, a rope expert. I so thought you sorry. were throwing shade. I thought you were throwing shade at whoever it was. Good. Thank you for that clarification. I love that. I didn't even think the clarification was needed. I realized my error, but I can't wait for the episode where I can use an N-O-T expert. <laughs> but uh, someone who has an expert with ropes. Thank we'll you. Say, um, they were brought in to show that it was possible for a person to create those knots on their own. It took this expert three minutes to tie themselves up. However, that expert later admitted he didn't use the same type of knots that were found in Cindy's case, which to me defeats the purpose of the demonstration. And we go back to your original label of not expert. <laughs> So he's not a not expert. <laughs> I like Come it. Come on. I like buddy. it a lot. You I can't know. do that. I know. <sighs> it's a lot. It's a lot. Uh, there's also the fact that when he was doing the demonstration, he had no drugs in his system at all, which would have absolutely played a factor in Cindy tying those knots. Uh, but since the expert could create any knots, and in only three minutes, police felt it was further proof that Cindy had orchestrated everything, even though she had ten times the lethal dose of morphine in her body. It was suggested that the morphine would have taken fifteen minutes at least to take effect, so police believed that Cindy ingested or injected the morphine, discarded any syringe or paraphernalia, walked to the abandoned house, tied herself up, all in less than 15 minutes. Which again, when you say it out loud like that, seems really unlikely. So the Vancouver police and RCMP believed that Cindy injected herself and then walked, which is just wild. But some suggested because Cindy was a nurse, she'd have access to any kind of drug that she wanted, but as I stated before, she did not have access to that particular medication in her specific role, and the hospital checked its records, and none were missing, especially in that high of a dose. Although it should be noted, some close to Cindy have claimed that she was known to hoard her prescription medications. So is it possible that the morphine and flurazepam came from past prescriptions Yes. But if some of those symptoms were injected, then where did that come from? I assume any prescription would have been in pill form and not an injectable. But I could be wrong. I am not a doctor. But it wasn't just the police who believed that Cindy was behind it all. Neil Hall, a reporter for the Vancouver Sun, followed Cindy's story from the beginning and even righted, wrote, righted, good Lord, Christy. The Kool-Aid's not hitting me right. <laughs> I'll say that. Uh, Neil 
ended up writing a book about Cindy's case. He believes that Cindy staged not only her death, but also the entire seven years of harassment. He points to the fact that all the harassing phone calls were too short to trace and that they were done during and that during times of police surveillance on Cindy's home, nothing happened. But the moment the police left, there was an incident. And to that I say, what if? And I'm just speculating here. What if the person stalking Cindy was a cop and therefore knew when the police were nearby? The incidents also had a lack of physical evidence left behind, and a cop would be more aware of not leaving a trace. Or what if the suspect was watching her and purposely waited until the police presence was gone before making another move? But we'll get more into suspects in a moment. Of course. I don't believe that Cindy was responsible for her own death. If Cindy took her own life, then her body would have been in the same location from the day she died until the day she was found. But the entomologist said that Cindy was likely only in that location for one week, as opposed to two weeks. Not to mention the fact that it rained between May 25th and May 27th, so if her body was lying outside the whole time, it would have ended up getting dirty. However, there was no dew or dirt found on the body. There was also no sign of animal activity, which one would expect for a body outside for several days. For a week? Yeah. Yeah. There were above normal temperatures at the time, so wouldn't someone nearby have smelled decomposition in some way? Especially when the construction worker who found her was living in a van near the abandoned house at the time? who, according to Cindy's sister Melanie, was interviewed by police, but before the inquest, they had lost his statement, and the man had left the area, and they had no way of contacting him. Uh-huh. Is it possible that he was involved? Of course. Especially when he was living right in the area at the time, and since police didn't seem to investigate the case as a homicide. But if that's true, then why was her body not discovered for two weeks when it was found in a very high-traffic area known for a lot of pedestrian traffic. A man allegedly came forward to say he jogged past that location every day, twice a day. And yet, he never saw Cindy's body, despite it being left out in the open for two weeks. The coroner said Cindy likely died May 25th, and if Cindy was behind it, she would have been found in the place where she died. But... An expert claimed that her body was likely only in the location since June 2nd. So where was her body between May 25th and June 2nd? And how did it move if Cindy was already dead? And if she potentially injected herself or ingested that morphine and florazepam, then where was any sort of, like, if it was injected, where was a syringe that was used? How did she walk almost a mile to the abandoned house without being noticed? How did she remain there for weeks without being noticed? How did the body not have any dirt of any kind on it? And if she walked almost a mile from her car, why weren't her feet dirty? I 
can't. I still can't get a straight answer on whether Cindy was wearing shoes at the time or not. The photos, again, show no shoes, and most reports claim she wasn't wearing any. But since the case closed, private investigator Ozzie Cabin said, quote, The shoes were like they'd been polished, totally clean and spotless. That shows us the shoes were not there any length of time. So were the shoes found randomly at the scene? Or was she wearing them? I have I have a lot of questions, Ozzy. Yeah. And then there are times when other people were witness to the harassment. Private investigator Ozzy Cabin said that he was with Cindy during some of the attacks and admitted to hearing random banging on the door and the quiet whispering phone calls. Even Cindy's ex, Pat McBride, said he was with Cindy when she received several of the phone calls. A police detective admitted to answering one of the harassing phone calls while interviewing Cindy at her home. Even Cabin and one of Cindy's sisters claimed to have answered multiple silent calls themselves. So how is she making them up if other people witness them? But again, you know, I can't. I'm just thoroughly annoyed, I yep. think, at this point. Then there were the incidents that were reported by people other than Cindy, such as when Cindy was out of town, her downstairs tenant called police after hearing someone upstairs in Cindy's portion of the house. When police arrived, no one was there, and nothing seemed out of place. Some of Cindy's co-workers answered calls at work from a male voice who was demanding to know where Cindy was. The man refused to give his name. And friends admitted that Cindy was with them more than once when her home alarm went off, and when they arrived at her house together, they found a rock had been thrown through her window. So if Cindy's death was, in fact, a suicide, explain any of that. Officers is what I say. But if it wasn't, then that means we're potentially looking at a homicide. So if it was a homicide, who are the potential suspects? I already touched on it briefly, so let's start with Cindy's one-time boyfriend, Pat McBride. As a cop, McBride would know when the surveillance was happening on Cindy's house and he'd know better than to leave any evidence lying around, or if he had, he could probably make it disappear. He also had a key to Cindy's house, even after he moved out. And someone on Reddit, which, take this with a grain of salt, claiming to be a relative of McBride's, alleges that years after Cindy's death, McBride was fired for similar attacks or threats on women. I couldn't corroborate that, but isn't that interesting? interesting? It's interesting to think about, but you never know. But there's also the fact that McBride was friends with the private investigator, Ozzy Cabin, and McBride was the one who suggested that Cindy hire him. So is it possible they were working together, and then this way Cabin was able to get really close to Cindy plus was also getting paid all while messing with her. There is no evidence to suggest that Cabin was involved in any way. I'm just speculating. Allegedly, with everything, and same with Pat McBride, there is nothing to say he was involved. Allegedly. 
Thank you. Then there's the obvious suspect, and that's Cindy's ex-husband, Roy Makepeace. I only say obvious because we know that in a lot of murder cases, the spouse ends up being the killer. But, again, this is a speculation, as we can't say for certain. But there was a time in early November 1982 when Roy was discovered armed with a rifle and a handgun patrolling the alley behind Cindy's house. And police obviously thought Roy was a potential suspect as they questioned him multiple times. There were rumors that Roy was physically abusive with Cindy, but there wasn't any evidence to corroborate that. Although, if we've learned anything doing this show, it's that there isn't always physical evidence of abuse. Yes. Cindy's siblings did admit to once hearing Roy slap Cindy while they were in their home. Roy, of course, denied any abuse of any kind and any involvement in Cindy's harassment or her murder. But Roy always had ideas as to who was truly behind the crime. In February 1984, Roy told police he believed the suspect was someone related to one of the children that Cindy worked with. Uh, Again, he referred to it as a troubled child, which, be better, Roy. Stop. Uh, He even claimed that Cindy had upset one of the families who had connections to organized crime, which I feel is a real red herring for me. But since I don't know the names of the children, I can't verify who their relatives are. But this feels like something you say to throw the police off your trail. Allegedly. Yeah. After Cindy's death, Roy told police he believed Cindy suffered from disassociative identity disorder and that one of Cindy's personalities was trying to destroy the other. Now, Roy was a prominent psychiatrist, but Cindy was treated at a psychiatric ward for 10 weeks and none of the doctors there or even her own therapists that she went to after ever diagnosed her with that same disorder. And to me, it would really make the police think that you weren't involved if you used your expertise to claim the victim was simply suffering from a mental illness. Again, allegedly. Yeah. McBride and Roy were both allegedly investigated by the police and cleared of any involvement. But what about the man that Tom Woodcock saw running from the fire in August 1985? Police were never never able to identify him, but it's sketchy to think this person was just standing outside of Cindy's house, watching it in the middle of the night, only to run away the second someone spotted him. Is it possible that Cindy was responsible for some of the attacks, but that someone else took it to violent extremes? Maybe she even faked some of the attacks so the police would take the real incidents more seriously. According to Cindy's sister Melanie, their father, Otto Hack, claimed he would reveal information about Cindy's case on his deathbed. Otto died in 2010, but if he made any deathbed confessions, nothing has been made public about it. At the end of the day, Cindy suffered through seven years of being gaslit into believing the attacks weren't real. I can't even begin to think of how much that would wreak havoc on someone's mental health. And that sadly brings me to a case very similar to Cindy's, but this one occurred in the United States in 2011. 
Morgan Jennifer Ingram was born August 16, 1991, in Glenwood Springs, Colorado. She was described as loving, kind, always smiling, and radiating light. Morgan had some health struggles in her youth, but seemed to have overcome them. She was a dancer, photographer, and was attending college with her future sights set on law school. At the time, Morgan was living with her parents, Steve and Tony Ingram, in Carbondale, Colorado. After spending most of the day in Aspen with her boyfriend, Danny, Morgan arrived home at 9.03 p.m. on December 1st, 2011. As her mother, Tony, had been expecting Morgan at 4 p.m., Tony met Morgan at the door. Tony said that Morgan walked right past her and muttered, bitch, under her breath as she continued straight to her room and closed the door. Tony said that this was completely out of character for Morgan, who was usually very pleasant and happy. Steve went to his daughter's bedroom 10 minutes later to check on her, and he said she changed into flannel pajama pants and a cami top. Steve said, quote, We just talked about life, we did this often, and she was happy. I said goodnight, she said I love you daddy, I walked out the door, and I thought everything was going to be fine. The next morning, Tony got up and went to check on Morgan, but couldn't wake her. Tony said that Morgan's knees were bent in a fetal position and her hair was matted. Morgan had blood on her forehead, her bottom lip was swollen, and her nose appeared to be broken. Tony called 911 while Steve moved Morgan to the floor and started CPR. When paramedics arrived, they said it was too late. Morgan was just 20 years old. Seventeen days later, an autopsy revealed that Morgan had died from natural causes from a genetic metabolic disorder called acute intermittent, oh boy, porphia, pori, oh, I should have looked that up, (laughs) p-o-r-p-h-y-r-i-a, that's what I've got in me today, Uh, Morgan's own doctor's disputed the claim, so the medical examiner ran more tests. Eight months later, the forensic pathologist concluded that Morgan's manner of death was suicide by overdose, which feels like a wild difference from the original one. The main substance in Morgan's system was amitriptyline, which is usually prescribed for headaches and abdominal pain. A doctor said, quote, Normally, if someone was taking amitriptyline as prescribed, the level would be 50 to 250. Toxic levels would be considered anything over 500. And now consider Morgan had almost 8,000. Jesus. Which is extremely high. Amitriptyline had been prescribed to Morgan years prior due to stomach issues in her youth, but to the best of her parents' knowledge, Morgan hadn't taken any in years. There was also high levels of Flexoril, a muscle relaxant found in Morgan's stomach, which had not been prescribed to her, nor was it found anywhere in the house. A doctor suggested that Flexoril was sometimes used as a date rape drug, Despite how Morgan's parents described uh, the condition of her body, the autopsy showed no indication of trauma. What? I don't know. Uh, When Steve last saw Morgan the night before she died, he he said that she was in pajamas, and yet when Morgan was found the next morning, she was dressed in jeans and a t-shirt. 
Her pants were unzipped and unbuttoned. No rape kit was ever done. Uh, Morgan's body was never processed as a homicide, which means no hair samples or fingernail scrapings were taken. Hours after Morgan's body was removed from the house, the pathologist called the Ingrams to ask what they wanted done with their daughter's body. He told them that he had everything he needed, but that they didn't have space in the morgue, so they had to make a quick decision. So the day her body was discovered, Morgan Ingram was cremated. Which feels wild to me. Later on, it was discovered that the pathologist didn't take enough samples, so most of his toxicology reports came back as insufficient specimens submitted. There were items missing from Morgan's room. Sheets were missing from her bed, two pillowcases, and the pajamas that Steve saw Morgan in were nowhere to be found. Tony said that even Morgan's jewelry was missing. The Ingrams also believed that the scene had been contaminated. Tony said some of the investigators picked up clothes from the floor and placed them on the bed where Morgan's body was. <sighs> but if Morgan's death was a homicide, who would want her dead? Well, it turns out that in the four months leading up to her death, Morgan had been terrorized by a stalker. It all started one night when Morgan heard a tapping noise on her window. When the family went outside to investigate, there was nobody there. In fact, there wasn't anything within 10 feet of the windows, so it couldn't have been like a tree branch scraping or anything. Two days later, the tapping happened again. Morgan was getting ready for to take a shower when she got this awful feeling she was being watched. So she started to close her bedroom window, and someone punched the window from the outside. Jesus! According to her parents, Morgan was so terrified that she slept in her parents' walk-in closet for almost a month. Jesus. Four to six weeks before Morgan's death, her parents installed a panic button on the side of Morgan's bed. Her parents said the button was ripped off the night, the morning that they found her. Um, it was found later under some clothes in the corner of her room. For months, they heard someone banging on their house, throwing rocks at their windows. Police even found footprints outside of Morgan's window. Steve installed, installed several security cameras around the house on August 30th, and on that very first night that they were up, they caught footage of a young male standing in their driveway at 12.46 a.m. The male looked similar to a teenager who had recently moved in just three doors down. His name was Keenan Van Chinkle, uh, who was dating a girl that Morgan knew named Brooke Harris. Six months before, Morgan borrowed her mother's car and someone keyed the word bitch on the side of the car. The Ingrams believed that the culprit was Brooke. I don't know why they believed that, but Brooke, of course, denies any involvement. Apparently, Keenan and Morgan had some kind of altercation at a party four months prior to the stalking starting. Uh-huh. The Ingrams reached out to 27 different outside experts, hoping that someone would take another look at Morgan's case. One of them was Paul Holes, who some may recall from the Golden State Killer documentary, All Be Gone in the Dark. Of course. Which also, of course, featured Michelle McNamara. Paul came in and looked at the case and even had some items from the scene tested. The family found a toque 
or beanie in Morgan's room that they had never seen before. When it was tested, it was found to have two male contributors, but without anyone to test it against, it was kind of a lost cause. But it seemed it didn't have Morgan or either of her parents' DNA anywhere on it. Throughout Paul's investigation, people talked about how happy Morgan always was. But when they talked to Morgan's boyfriend, Danny, he said the day they spent together, Morgan seemed off. Morgan then allegedly went to a party that involved drugs and alcohol before heading home. So it has been suggested that she got the Flexoril from someone at the party. Then it was discovered that her parents, who had been adamant that Morgan would never take her own life, had originally told police in their first interview after Morgan's death that Morgan was suicidal and suffered from depression. Is it possible that over the years their memories have altered to protect themselves from the truth? Or did someone get away from murder with murder because of a poor investigation? It's difficult to know what to believe. Her parents are still adamant that Morgan was murdered. Investigator Paul Holes believes Morgan took the pills herself, but that the overdose was accidental. I will say the terrible investigation that went on, like Paul Holes got to watch a video um, that the police were took as they, you know, like usually when they get to a crime scene, they film the whole thing. They watched that video and on it, there was like a, um, coffee cup in Morgan's bathroom that had some sort of like a dark liquid in it. It was never taken in, so it was never tested. So nobody knows what was in it. Um, And then also that first coroner not taking enough samples, so a lot of his tests couldn't be run. And then a lot of tests couldn't be run after because he pushed to have her body cremated way too early. Over the course of the four months, Uh, Morgan's family reported more than 50 incidents of harassment to the police. They even admitted that there were some instances that they didn't contact the police at all. And yet, it took the police 55 days before they officially assigned a detective to Morgan's case. And don't even get me started on that pathologist who pushed Morgan's parents to have her cremated so quickly, because I can't. Both Morgan's and Cindy's stories are so tragic. Both were young, beautiful women who had their lives cut tragically short. And as of April 2022, no one has been held responsible for either death. Morgan's family has suffered through years of internet trolls who have tried to say that Morgan's parents faked the stalking incidents. Yeah. Even though they have surveillance video of multiple men wandering in their home, around their home. And Cindy's family suffered as Cindy's death was the second tragic death in their family. Lawrence Shuffle, Shuffel, uh, the husband of Cindy's sister Marlene, was one of four Royal Canadian Navy air crew members to be lost during a Canadian military rescue in September 1973. Oh, dear. And sadly, the suffering these families have endured is similar to what so many families go through, as women being murdered by stalkers is an all-too-common occurrence. And just a warning, because I'm going to mention a few cases, and some of these stories get quite graphic. So, brace yourselves for that. 
In the UK, 19-year-old Shanna Grice broke up with 26-year-old Michael Lane after a few months of dating. Lane didn't seem to take the hint, so he started to stalk Shanna, hiding outside of her house and putting a tracking device on her car. She reported Lane to the Sussex police on February 8th, 2016, and they fined her 90 pounds for wasting their time. Nope. Six months later, in August 2016, Lane broke into Shanna's home, slashed her throat, set her body on fire, and then just went to work. Not only had police ignored Shanna's initial complaint, but it was found that she had filed complaints against Lane five times leading up to her murder, including in July when he stole a key to her house and stood in her bedroom to watch her sleep. She woke up and recorded the incident on her phone and shared it with police, who just in turn gave Lane a warning. In March 2017, Michael Lane was convicted of Shanna's murder and sentenced to 25 years to life. The fact that they find her, I I just don't know how those people live with themselves. I really no. don't. Like that's no, it's, it's one thing. It's one thing if it's like if you don't take it seriously or it falls through the cracks or sure. n- not making it okay ever. But retaliating against a victim reporting a crime, I I just I'm very curious how you sleep cuz that's oh God. horrific. Yep. Well, these don't get any better. I'm sure. In February 2021, 23-year-old Gracie Spinks went to police to report that 35-year-old Michael Sellers, a former co-worker, had been stalking her. He showed up at her work asking for her, and he was even found to be sitting in his car waiting for her at just random times. On June 18th, Gracie was found unconscious in a field just five miles or eight kilometers from her home, where she kept her horse in Duck Mountain, Derbyshire, UK. After she was found around 8 a.m., one witness saw a man running away from the scene. At first, it was believed that Gracie had been kicked by her horse, but when paramedics arrived, they found that Gracie had been stabbed. She was pronounced dead at 8.50 a.m., An autopsy found that the stab wound had severed her jugular vein, carotid artery, and her spine. Jesus. Seller's body was found at 11 a.m. in a nearby field. It is believed that he took his own life. A few weeks before Gracie's death, a backpack was found at the stables less than 100 meters or 328 feet from where Gracie was murdered. The bag contained two hunting knives, a hammer, a hatchet, Viagra, and a note that read, don't lie. Later on, it was found the bag also contained a receipt that linked sellers, that linked back to Michael Sellers. The backpack was simply logged by police as lost property and not followed up on. Mm -hmm. I've Mm -hmm. got so many questions. She'd already reported a stalker at that point, had she not? She had. And nobody thought. Nobody no. thought. Hey, that we found murder weapons home. and Viagra, which is the most disgusting, dark shit I think I may mm-hmm. have ever heard. And you yeah. guys just thought, 
Ah, that's somebody's lost property, these hatchets, these murder weapons and tools of sex assault. Yeah. I'm not saying Viagra is always a tool of sex assault. I'm saying of in, in that connotation. Yeah. Yowza. Especially when it's super close to her house and found at the stables where she kept her horse. Correct. Yeah. So, um, yep. Okay. Yeah. Again, they, uh, they aren't getting better. They aren't getting better. Uh, on August 7th, 2021, 35-year-old Kristen West was found murdered in her own home in Prince George, B.C., Prior to her death, Kristen had reported to the RCMP several times that she was being harassed by 36-year-old Dennis Glado, who wouldn't take no for an answer. According to Facebook posts made by Kristen, not only did the RCMP ignore her complaints, such as during a July 3rd report when Kristen claimed two RCMP officers sided with her stalker, there was also a time on July 8th when an officer outright said, he didn't believe her. GLaDO was arrested, but no officers have been account- held accountable for their own actions. Well, I hope that their own brains torture them every day. Yeah. And I, I don't feel bad about that statement. There we go. <laughs> uh, on October 14th, 2021, 22-year-old Abigail Saldana found a tracking device on her car and told her mother she believed she was being followed. On October 26th, Abigail was found dead in her car from multiple gunshot wounds. A license plate reader had picked up Abigail's plate going through an intersection in Fort Worth, Texas. Seconds later, that same machine recorded the plates of a truck belonging to a man that Abigail had claimed was stalking her at a club where she worked. The owner of the vehicle, uh, 54-year-old Stanley Sesliga, was subsequently arrested. He posted on social media how much he loved her. But when but after repeat she repeatedly turned him down, he started making claims that she was a sex worker in the hopes of getting her fired. The following is one of his elaborate social media posts. Please. Quote She's so beautiful and personable that I envisioned a future with her. But dealing with all the lies is overwhelming. I realize that's part of your primary job as an adult entertainer, but leave it at the club. If you only leave your second job being in high-end prostitution, we could move forward. The ego of a man who makes up lies to make himself feel better about why a woman doesn't want to be with him. Again, she was 22 years old and stunning, and he was a 54-year-old fucking greasebag. I can't. Also, the whole concept of if I can't have her, no one can is I'm I can't. Yeah. Again, <sighs> these don't get better. <laughs> yeah. 71 year old Sylvia Matthews was murdered in her DC home on December 4th, 2021. Sylvia had contacted the police twice on the morning of her death, saying she was being stalked by 66-year-old Michael Garrett. In 1998, Garrett was doing time at a local jail where Sylvia worked as a corrections officer. The day that Garrett got out of jail in January 1999, he broke into Sylvia's house through her bathroom window. He then chased Sylvia around and hid in one of her closets when police arrived. 
Garrett was charged with stalking, assault with a dangerous weapon, multiple counts of burglary, and destruction of property, and sentenced to 24 years in prison. But because of the COVID-19 outbreaks in the D.C. jail, a judge granted Garrett a compassionate release, and he was let out two years early. Seven months later, Garrett was arrested on October 7th for threatening Sylvia at her home. Fifteen days later, Garrett beat Sylvia outside of her home, and for bullshit reasons I don't know, his prosecution was suspended. On the morning of December 3rd, 2021, Sylvia phoned the police at least twice to say she had spotted Garrett outside of her home. At 7.30 a.m., Sylvia called to say that Garrett was breaking into her car and trying to get into her home. Officers arrived, but couldn't find Garrett anywhere. Then at 8.44 a.m., Sylvia called again to say not only was Garrett out standing outside, he, ha he had called her and was on the phone with her. This time, when police arrived, they couldn't see him, but they took the phone from her and told Garrett, leave her alone. Two hours later, neighbors heard a physical altercation in Sylvia's home. When police arrived, Garrett was standing over Sylvia's body. His public defender claimed that Garrett had just found Sylvia. He was just trying to help her. A judge, thankfully, didn't buy that, so Garrett was charged with second-degree murder and denied bail. Oh, but because it's such a close thing, I have no more information on that particular dirtbag. Just a level of avoidable. Just so yeah. avoidable. Just get her out of there. Mm -hmm. Get her out of there. Yep. Get her out yep. of there. Yeah, I can't. I can't. I can't. Uh, and I, I promise, I promise, this will be the... So oh the last God. one that I'm going to make everyone go through. Uh, 21 year old Mika Ort, an American studying in the Netherlands, broke up with her boyfriend of two years. She briefly dated a man, a uh, 27 year old Thomas R, because it's uh, Europe. They right. don't like to do the yep. last names, uh, whom she met on Tinder. But when Mika decided to get back together with her ex, Thomas flew into a rage. He started to follow her. He sent her constant text messages, drove up and down her street, and put a GPS tracker on her bike. Just after 3 a.m. on March 6th, 2022, very up-to-date, Thomas went to Mika's apartment, threw an incendiary bomb against the building that woke the other tenants and had them rushing to leave the building, but as they were running out, he went in got into her apartment, and stabbed her with a sharp object. Thomas then flee tried to flee the country, but was caught by police after Thomas's parents alerted police to his location. Good oh. on them. Yeah. I hope that Thomas rots. But again, that is so soon as of now. I have no uh, further of updates on that. And sadly, I could talk for hours about other cases like this. The number of time that these women went to the police and nothing was done enrages me. But let me say it for the record. I don't believe that all police are like this. And I know that in some situations, nothing much can be done legally. So sometimes they just have their hands are tied, that kind of thing. But these women were let down by the very people they went to for help. Just like Cindy James was. 
Reporting for True Crime and Cocktails, I'm enraged. <laughs> and I'm livid, Ash. Um, wow, what great research. This was a wild ride. Um, yeah. Look, get one more drink. Hit the loo one more time, and we're going to come on back with my thoughts, our thoughts. Our thoughts. My thoughts, your thoughts, red thoughts, blue thoughts on this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. This episode is brought to you by Philo. Do you love TV? Do you love saving money? Then Philo is your solution. Philo has shows, movies, and live TV for just $25 a month. You can even try it for free with their seven-day free trial. No contracts, no commitments, no hassles, just a better way to watch TV. Never miss a minute of shows like the hit docuseries Where is Wendy Williams or classics such as Friends. If you can't get enough TV, then there's no better way to watch. Philo has more than 70 channels like BET, MTV, and AMC. And the best part? You can try it yourself with their seven-day free trial. Sign up today at philo.tv slash poppods. That's P-H-I-L-O dot TV slash P-O-P-P-O-D-S to get 50% off your first month. Welcome to Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low- and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he'll chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. We're, of course, discussing the Unsolved Mysteries episode, Cindy James. Wow, this is one I cannot wait to dig into with my thoughts because Mm -hmm. it's just wild. So many things going on, so I'm just going to uh, go back through my notes and let's see. Um, First of all, she was born in Oliver, British Columbia, and I just wanted to say, That is an area that is so quaint and beautiful for people who aren't from there. Um, The Okanagan Valley is an area in in BC, which I had the pleasure of going to once, and it is stunning. Like, Mm. unlike anything you've ever seen, postcards, everywhere you look looks like a painting. It's just beautiful, which is also so interesting that it feels like, you know, Richmond, I guess, is, you know, I think is a little bit more of a city, but it's just interesting to me that a place that's known for such beauty has also been known for so much violence and murder, which is um, horrific. So you brought up Mr. McBride, uh, Mm. and I immediately just said suspect. That was the first thing I wrote down because I was like, you moved in right away and then started dating. That feels odd. Yeah. Again, he is the one, I believe that you said that found Roy walking around with the guns. So do we know that that's true? Or is it their word against each other? Probably their word against each other. So that makes, that's interesting to me. Because also then you were like, 
And then McBride found a note on her lawn. It's like, did he or did he just bring it over from his home where he wrote it? <laughs> you know what I mean? Again, this is all speculation. We're just, we're going of through all the options course. here. Um, it's interesting, again, that when she woke up from that attack, Cindy said it was two men, which yeah. speaks to two of my theories, which are completely different. One, of course, is that McBride and Cabin are working together, the PI. Sure. Because yeah. it's interesting to me. I'm going to skip around a bunch because there's so much I want to get to. Of course. It's interesting to me that as soon as she said to Cabin, I'm ready to talk, she died. So it's, it, and it's like, again, like, we know that McBride and Cabin were friends. That's why she met Cabin. So that's interesting to me that it was like, as soon as she told him, you know what, I'm done with this, I'm, I'm ready to talk, suddenly she turns up missing and then dead. And then, of course, the other two men, male pair, I'll get to in a minute, but being, yeah. of course, uh, her ex-husband Roy and this other uh, psychiatrist, Buddy? <laughs> I don't even oh, want to call him that. Sure. Um, the next note I just wrote down is long-term domestic violence. At this point, everything you were describing, I was like, I, I don't, I wouldn't rule out her terror of trying to cover for Roy. I wouldn't rule out her going back to him as meaning that he's innocent. Sure. Um, and if nothing else... This is a fact we can state. Whatever was happening here, whether it was by somebody else or herself, is a level of mental torture yeah. that would break anybody. So, yeah. again, either if she was doing this herself, and I'll get to that in a, in a bit, something had to make her do that. I don't think that she just all of a sudden one day woke up that way. Um, sure. Or if this was being perpetrated by other people, my goodness, way to, like, these are tactics I feel like that would break down anybody. And to that, I also will add, I do also believe, I'm skipping around in my theories here, do that it. there's a real possibility that someone started this and then, yeah, either some of it could have been her trying to prove it to the police or I think she could have had a mental break where someone started this torture and after years of it, sure, is it possible she started doing certain things because she was mentally tortured for years. I think that that's also possible. You know what I mean? Sure. Um, and I don't blame her for that. That's not, I'm saying, like, my God, it, if she was able, if, if that is what happened, it would have happened to any of us. Again, Another note was found by McBride. I just find it interesting that people are finding these things and then that on one hand makes it look like, see, she's not making it up. But then on the other hand, to me, doesn't exonerate him. No. The stalking around the neck being the consistent thing that happens to her. Yeah. If this is someone who has been attacking her consistently, the fact that she again was able to function in any way, I think is miraculous. If this was herself, again, I feel like that just speaks to a large trauma that happened, which again, I'll get to my thoughts on that in a minute. The paring knife pinning the note to her hand, oh. found by the private investigator. That was found by Cabin. 
Yeah. So again, at this point, we are just trusting mm-hmm. that these men have nothing but good intentions. We are just trusting that he did ind- indeed find her that way. And and the idea that she could have done that to herself, I guess, but that is a level of, I don't even know what to, it's one thing to put something, you know, to, to, to cut yourself. It's another thing to, I mean, I'm not being glib at all. Like that is extreme. And again, speaks to me that if, if she did do it to herself, what there is a, there is something bigger here is my whole point that it's like, that is a level of trauma that is so huge. But again, do I think that she did that? I would then ask again, is she right-handed? Do we, was there blood on her hands? What's the proof? How much was this investigated? These are the things we always come back to. Show yep. us the report that says she could have physically done it to herself. Because I bet you yeah. that could also unravel very easily if any ounce of investigation was done. But yep. I am speculating. That's when the police bring Roy in for six hours. Here's my question. This has to be... If it's not her, we're going to take that off the table. I'll deal with that in a minute. Sure. If this is not her, it has to be someone she knows. Because has to be. how on earth would strangers be getting these new phone numbers? How? It's impossible. It has to be somebody in her inner circle. That includes yeah. her ex-husband, Roy. It includes McBride, who she dated, who moved out, who kept a key, who is law yep. enforcement. Mm-hmm. And it includes... PI cabin. Again, at this point, there's nothing showing me that it's like no one is exonerated in, in my eyes at this point. No. I find it interesting that she didn't move in with her parents or friends or move away to another town at this point because it had yeah. been going on for some time. That speaks to me. That brings me back to Roy. That brings me back to some kind of control, some kind of, and there was a there was illusions that she made about, I can't tell you the full story, but when I can, when this is all over, there was references to that. Even her dad being like, when, you know, on my deathbed, like, yeah. it feels like there is some other thing there that was keeping her from, and it speaks also to, because I know that it could be argued, well, she was walking her dog alone at night. Like, is that really somebody who's being tormented? And it's like, well, it speaks to somebody who w- was being potentially being tormented by someone she knew. She yeah. didn't potentially fear those people walking her dog late at night. Sure. Right? Now, granted, you could argue that it's like, well, then wouldn't she also fear a random attack? Whatever. But again, I'm just uh, building a building some, trying to build some profiles here. She's also completely allowed to live her life. A hundred percent. It's not a proof of anything, ultimately. Oh, no. It's a proof of nothing. No, memory. it's not. Um, so she says it's her husband and this other psychiatrist who she met, witnessed murder somebody. The first thing I wrote down in all caps, yeah. two psychiatrists would absolutely now know how to mentally torture somebody. Great point. So if she was the only witness on this boat, her yeah. sister was there. She said she didn't see anything. Either she kept her mouth shut. Maybe that's what the father knows. Interesting. Or yeah. her sister didn't witness it. This was just, let's say for argument's sake, Cindy witnesses this. They realize, what are we going to do about this? You, you did mention that she filed for divorce shortly after that trip. Yep. That's a very easy, the two of them together very easily could start 
the phone calls, the gaslighting, all kinds of the, the letters, the notes, all of these things, the, the threats, any psychiatrist, I mean, you don't even have to be a psychiatrist, but certainly any psychiatrist would know the ins and outs of how to make someone mentally break, in my opinion. Yes. Not saying that proves anything, just offering that. So, um, yes, okay, she OD'd, she called her own phone number. Again, to me, at this point, that doesn't prove anything. That doesn't prove that she called her, the, her own phone number every time. It proves that she certainly did once. And again, if she only did once, God bless. Because I feel again like anybody would be, again, on the brink after all of this. So, just skipping ahead here. So, Agnes and Tom. Tom sees the man staring at the house. Then I'm like, can we prove I'm going to every area? What about Agnes and Tom? They were they had they allegedly sure. had plans with her that day. Why did she know to go to the bank? Why was she like, that's where her car will be? That was yeah, great call on that. That is a weird, very specific. So specific. Yeah. Calls the police, insists that the police take it seriously. She's been around for this entire time. She, for seven years, she's yeah. been going over there. She's never. She's never asked the police to take it seriously before. Also, there was the night that she showed up unannounced and found her unconscious. Yeah. She said she was grabbed from behind. She didn't see who. Again, to me, it's like, is it possible in a world, again, we explore everything on this show um, because that's what you have to do. Is it possible that Agnes and Tom were these people? That it's somebody, again, that was never even on the radar? It's Who possible. Knows? Who knows? Again, speculating in a world where anything is possible. So, also interesting to me that she 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 brought in a tenant, this man, Richard Johnson. Yeah. I don't know whether that made her feel more secure at home or not. I don't know how much she knew him ahead of time. Yeah, For I don't someone know. who has been going through this for seven years, that's an interesting choice. But again, just, just saying... Maybe there was part of her who that felt safer knowing someone else was it like in the house. Yeah, I could see that. I could see that. But, but then also it's like again. But then trust, any noise you hear. You, but then it's like a trust you know? no one situation, right? So again, to me, that speaks to she knows who this is. As she's alluded to at this point many times, that she yeah. knows who it was. She can't come forward for whatever reason. To me, it's that it's not that she fears absolutely everybody. Her behaviors make it seem, or you could speculate, that she she knows who her tormentors are. Um, her st some of her stuff was found under the car. So, if you're ma if you're making me have to believe that she killed herself, yeah, and she's trying to make it look like a murder, there is so much planning that would have to go into working this out, yeah. including. Tossing her wallet under the car, going to the bank and making a deposit at a certain time so that she would be seen somewhere. It's, there'd be places. She got a makeover the, that yeah. day. She bought a gift and gift wrapped it for someone's son. These are not the behaviors of someone who is purely suicidal, typically. Yeah. Sure. Um, on the day, for example. And again, I know that it's a very nuanced state of mind. 
I'm not trying to generalize, but I'm just stating that, again, it just feels to me like if that's what they're trying, if someone was trying to argue, there's a lot of steps that she would then have had to take to make it look like a murder. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, yeah, you really had to think about how to do this, throwing things into the car, et cetera. I don't know. It just doesn't sit with me. I think there is something to this note about the, the KDV 784 small silver gray. Yeah. Connected to the voicemail that Roy got that said something, and I'm paraphrasing because I was writing too quickly and I didn't get the exact wording, but something was like, no yeah. more smack, that whole thing. Oh, yeah, the like smack, something about smack and downers. Is it possible that there was some additional layer to this that no one has been aware of, i.e. she got involved in something not mob-related, but drug-related. Is it possible sure. that she knew Roy was involved in it? This other psychiatrist was involved in it. Is it possible that that's what had to do with the person that potentially died on the yacht? And this whole thing is about her trying to unravel some mystery or find other people involved. Did they, is there something where she had got involved again in over her head trying to keep a secret and then had to do some sort of favors or tasks for somebody? Sure. I throw all of this out there because again, I just feel like everything is a clue. And in this case, I don't feel like anything was treated as a clue. Nothing. Um. Here is something I also want to point out. She had morphine and the fluorazepam in her system. She did not have access to those drugs and none were missing at the hospital. Do you know who has access to all drugs? Psychiatrists, because they can prescribe medications to anybody. You don't have to be a patient. Now, I know that that violates rules, ethics, all of the above. It happens. Sure. That's the big difference between, you know, psychologists, you know, counselors, et cetera, and psychiatrists psychiatrists can prescribe medications. So to me, why at this point aren't police all over Roy going, you have access to a prescription pad? Oh, he was out of the country for a single oh my incident God. in the hundred that happened. So couldn't have been him. And this brings me to my next point. Isn't it possible that McBride and Roy were in on this together? Yeah. Again, it's like, yeah. it just feels like anytime someone, anytime there's someone in law enforcement involved and then a case gets bungled, it just feels impossible like that's not a factor. And to me, the fact that she was found with drugs in her system she didn't have access to, yeah. even though she could have been hoarding pills, whatever. My whole point is, is that it's like, that's a huge clue when you have an ex-husband who at this point law enforcement reported was seen years prior walking around with guns around her property. Oh. He has access to those drugs because he can prescribe them to himself. He can prescribe them to anyone else. Again, I'm like, why was that never looked into? There's got to be a database that shows what doctors prescribe what drugs, isn't there? I need to believe it. I have to believe that's tracked. Um, okay. 
7.58 p.m., she deposited her paycheck, and then I just wrote down, oh, you wrote check in the Canadian term because this is a Canadian case. I spelled it the Canadian way, <laughs> which if this was an American case, I would have spelled it the American spelling. And then I was of just course. laughing to myself that I was like, that's the accuracy in my own notes that no one but me sees. Now, the phone, line, the phone lines could have been encased, but she declined this. Yes. <sighs> she also could have moved away. She also could have moved in with friends. Like, again, to me, there's lots of things that could point to, you know, her having the motive of money. That faking these incidents potentially sure. could have made her money. All of that could point to those things. But again, when we go to the science, which is always what we want to do, it doesn't add up. It doesn't make sense. And all I kept thinking the whole time was why is no one commenting that her body was found laying on a man's coat? Whose coat was it? Was the coat tested? Did they just go, oh, it so. must have been laying there before her body happened to be placed in the same place? It's, it's insane. Again, they closed this case so quickly because their first thought was, oh, obviously it's suicide. And then they what? just closed it. One could also argue, psychologist hat on right now, why do you lay a body on a coat? One could argue because there is a perceived want for the person to be comfortable. There is a perceived want to put a barrier between the person and the bare ground. Sure subconscious, etc. This is the same reason why sometimes when we see killers who kill within their family, uh, they will position the bodies looking away. They will position the bodies with their heads on pillows. This is making me think of um, one of our early cases, uh, the one in France where he killed his whole family. Oh, allegedly. House of Terror. House yeah, of Terror. Yeah. And the way he positioned those bodies was with care. Right? Sure. Um, now, this is a lesser version of that, but to me, again, that's a clue. And again, test the coat. Test the coat. Yeah. Look into the yeah. coat. The coat is a huge clue that was just oh, completely glossed yes. over. Um, I wrote down, I guess, is it possible she somehow killed herself somewhere and then someone found her body and, and tied it up and posed it and moved it? But then I would say, isn't it possible that forensics would show that her body would have been posed after death? Like, I think the whole point is, is that rigor mortis sets in at a certain amount of time. Sure. Also, why would someone do that? Also, where and how? Also, why did she kill herself when? Why then? She had people coming over. If she's if she staged everything that thus far... Why wouldn't she do it in her own home like all of the other things? It doesn't match her own pattern. None of this yeah. matches. It doesn't make sense. And also, by the way, the argument that there was no fingerprints of her found in her house and all those fires were set, McBride had a key and he can wear gloves. Yep. So that, again, blows that out of the water to me. I don't feel like that sure. exonerates anything. Um, then I just wrote down, I hate to even suggest it, but paranormal? <laughs> oh, 
was wow, like, I know you don't want to bring that up. I know I that. I know, I don't. Yeah. But I was like, oh, I guess we have to go through, we have to, no stone left unturned on True Crime and Cocktails. But I was like, is it possible that there was some sort of possession involved? Is there possible that there was a haunting involved or that element? Is that why other people saw or heard it as well? I don't know. Again, but that still, I don't think, explains her going missing in the way she did and turning up dead. Um, I think again, like it's so hard at at the end of the day for me to say what I think my, my theory is because I, I don't know that I can speculate. It's, it's, it's infuriating to me as it is always with these, that it's, Mm. there's just so many places where they miss things. They, again, the idea that this could go on for seven years and just continually get written off, um, writing that off as a suicide when again, it just doesn't match her own pattern. If the rest of it was faked by her, it doesn't match. It doesn't make sense to me. Why all of a sudden, why would she go from being strangled with stockings and, and knives and things like that being involved to, to just taking pills and, and tying her wrist behind her back? I don't, I can't wrap my head around it. Oh, yeah. None of it makes sense. And all I had to hear was she was harassed for seven years, found dead with her hands and feet tied behind her back, and police said it was a suicide and closed the case. That's all I had to hear. And I was like, and I'm in. Yeah. Let's let's do this because this, there's no chance. I just don't. It's so frustrating because just so many things that you wish could have been done and the fact that I don't believe, I could be wrong, but I don't believe the majority of the items at that scene were ever processed like a homicide because they immediately believed that, like, they closed the case before they had full, like, toxicology reports. And that was going to be my other question thank you, yes, that I forgot, I didn't even write down, again, was a rape kit done when her body was found? As far as I know, no. It's, it's too much. <laughs> well, it's, it's just, just, it's so it's much. infuriating when you have no data, right? Like, we, yeah. we have no data because there was no, nothing collected, n- n- no kind of care being taken, and you know what? I just feel like there should be a rule where it's like, why aren't we processing everything like a homicide? It costs yes. more money. Great. Why aren't we diverting funds that way? I think yeah. if someone has lost their life, and a, certainly in a case like this where it seemed to be a, it's not in the home and the person is bound. To yeah. me, that should qualify. I'm not being glib when I say this, truly. But like as a special victim, like special victims unit, like it's like, why wasn't it processed as though it, we, let's assume it's a homicide until proven otherwise. Like right? innocent until proven guilty. Well, this is the other way around. Let's treat yeah. it like a homicide until we're absolutely sure. Because again, what's negative about doing a rape kit for someone who has died, um, processing the few things that are found to me, it's like the the amount of time and effort and money that's involved in that is so minor when you're talking about the loss of life again yeah. in, in what is what was initially completely unexplained. 
I don't oh. get it. I don't get why that's not the protocol. I just, I don't understand that. Oh, it's wild to think that it's like, oh, I think we've got this. Let's close it up instead of what would hurt to have too much information. Like it just, especially when it's like, oh, and then it came back. We don't know. It's like, wouldn't it be great to have more information to go on? I just, yeah, it's, it's infuriating and yeah. I'll never understand it. Yeah. Listen, I mean, what are your thoughts? I mean, do you have any thought about what you think? I mean, again, to me at the end of the day, the reason why it's infuriating to us, like yeah. that is like a millionth of a percentage of, of the psychological torture this woman had been put under, in my opinion, whether, oh. you know, like whether some yeah. of it was her herself or not. To me, it's just like. Again, and then Roy coming out of the end of being like, "Oh, I didn't, I didn't report those phone calls. I didn't think whatever." And well, I just misheard. I'm like, "So you're, you're, you're gaslighting the police now after your ex-wife has died. You're just yeah. openly gaslighting." Oh, I. There are so many people that I think are potentially involved. I don't believe it was her. I believe maybe there could have been some instances. Some of the phone calls maybe were her something I think that she did to try and make the police take the other stuff seriously, because I can't even begin to imagine how that would make your brain react. Like, I just think of like hearing a noise that drives me crazy, but nobody else hears it. I like, I can't imagine that to the degree of like your brain feeling like pe someone trying to make you feel crazy is I, I just can't. I there's something about the men in her life. I just, the fact that there's a cop involved, the fact that he was like, you know what I should do? I should move in to protect her. And it's like a woman that you've known for two weeks, you should move in with her. Isn't that also like a huge violation of like ethics codes? And like has to be like, it's wild to me. Um, So I'm just, Oh, the ex-husband doesn't sit well with me for so many reasons. Like, I just, I don't know what's going on. I truly believe it's at least two people in her life that started doing this. I don't know what for, so I lean towards, does it have something to do with the PI? Because he was getting paid for it. Is it something about Roy? Because he saw her with other men. It happened shortly after they split up, so he sees another man near her. Did he freak out about it? And this is how he was going to spend the rest of his life? I don't know. Um, I did uh, I did want to point out the synergy in this episode. This is uh, the second classic Unsolved Mysteries episode that we've done since our uh, first season. And both of the victims were named Cindy. Was the other Cindy song? It was. Wasn't she also bound? I thought I th her body hasn't been found, I think. Oh, okay. If I remember correctly. That's right. I could be That's wrong. right. That's right. Um, and also, this is the second Canadian episode we've done, or the second episode that featured Canada in it. Uh, and the other episode was Bruce MacArthur, who I mentioned this evening as well. That's right. So I find that weird. And the fact that I've said his name multiple times and didn't once say in the harbor, I'm 
embarrassed for myself. Um, I did. I mean, I know it's it's weird to say whether you enjoyed something or not. I research was difficult in the way of seven years worth of harassments, like a hundred incidents. There was just so much to try and get through to try and like whittle it down to make it what it ends up being. Um, so that was a lot, but God, did I love Canada coming out because where else can I mention the RCMP or the Bay or the Bank of Montreal or Safeway, which fun fact, I mean, she knows this obviously, but most people don't. I worked at Safeway briefly. That's right. Um, and while I'm at it, shout out to Kathy at Safeway because every time I've gone in there, uh, since no longer working there, uh, she's always been just so lovely to me. She always was lovely even when I worked there. But uh, then we started the podcast and I, I thought she had long forgotten who I was. And I went in and she was like, I just want to tell you how much I love it. I don't know if she still listens, but if she does, hey, Kathy, what a lovely, lovely lady. Um, and if she doesn't listen, if anyone knows Kathy at Safeway, let her know. This is her episode. This is uh, let, this is her let, time to come back to us. Let her know. Uh, just you could you could cycle through to the end. That's okay. We're okay with that. Just don't of tell course. us about it. Of course. Um, so it was wild to be able to mention things Canadian because again, RCMP is not something that comes up uh, often, but it's st- still enraging. Yeah. That it seems like it doesn't matter where we are. We end up with a case that it's like, oh, that wasn't properly investigated. Like, it's, it happens too many times, and I I just don't even know anymore. You know? It's tough. It's tough. It's really tough. I mean, again, I, I understand that it's like there's always a million factors, and understaffed and and overwhelmed and I, I get all of that but it's still it's when you're talking about loss of human life um senseless loss of human life it's just it's uh it's impossible not to uh get activated and emotional yes uh christy oxborough fantastic work i was riveted this entire time what a case my god um kudos as always to your impeccable research if only you were the one investigating these cases I pray you wouldn't have to look at dead bodies, but oh. I at least know that the right testing would be ordered. Oh, I I agree. I'll take that. I would yeah. I I would get I would order so many tests they'd be like, "Oh, this lady's costing us a fortune." And I'd be like, "I know." Yep. And you'd be like, "And it's not yours to worry about. It's mine." Yeah. And then I would of course be trying to teach myself how to run the test myself so they could have me do it and then I'm working overtime and then I'm just never sleeping and of course you know of course just how it goes well listen good on you we're all better for having you in our lives to give us the goods Uh, and thank you dear listeners for listening to this episode of true crime and cocktails if you haven't already give us a follow on the socials Instagram Facebook YouTube at true crime and cocktails 
Twitter at Not Detectives. And if you like a little bit more, we're on Patreon, patreon.com slash Cocktails, where you can take part in so many things. We do monthly Q&As. There's lots of bonus episodes. And we have a monthly patron poll where you can vote on an episode of the show that we will cover on this main feed of the show, which is what the next episode of the show is going to be. Do you want to tell the people about that episode? On the next True Crime and Cocktails... Jill Dando. That's right. Jill Dando was selected as the winner of the March patrons poll over there on Patreon. Uh, This is a case we have gotten requested a lot, so it's going to be great to cover on the show. So come back. See us next week for that. Uh, I can't wait to get into it. Um, Christy, do you want to say goodnight to the people? Sending you love, Dave Grohl. Goodnight, Taylor Hawkins. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Allow your imagination to be piqued by stories that are brought to life through captivating sound design, eerie soundscapes, and dynamic performances. As an Audible member, you'll be able to keep your heart rate up month after month because you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. If you're in the mood for a shocking psychological thriller, check out None of This is True by Lisa Jewell. Embrace brand new exclusive thrillers from bestselling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. That's audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500.